So I was reading this um, news article this week, Russ, um, mm. that said that um, in 2022, Taylor Swift's album Midnight's uh, accounted for one out of every 25 sales of vinyl records for the year. <laughs> but what the article didn't mention, though, and this is like pretty important, is that I personally accounted for one in 57 CD sales last year. <laughs> now that I would believe. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think believe. people need to know that. It's been a few years, but I remember yeah. reading that uh, one in every four CDs that are still sold are yeah. sold in Japan. Yeah, and that so, would make sense too, because I live here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in, I got to tell you, in 1994, like when I first came to Japan, I was living in um, Takasaki in uh, Gumaken. Oh. And I went to this guy's house. I don't, you know, I don't know. He may, he may not be alive anymore. I don't want to say that, you know, but if, if he's still alive, he's very old. But he was a big CD collector and he owned what he claimed was every Baroque CD released up to that time. I mean, this would be impossible to have kept up by now. Right, right. But he had this massive collection. They were all, and Japanese people, they were more like this then than now. Yeah. They, they are still kind of fanatical. Like they'll focus in on one thing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or one artist or one, and they'll kind of just collect all of that. And he right. had every Baroque CD ever released wow. up to 1994. It was crazy. And there were, there were tons of them by that time. I mean, they had CDs that were, um, they started coming out around 1984, 1985. So he had nine years of like right. Baroque releases and they were just getting more and more. And now, I mean, the amount of uh, Baroque albums that come out in a single year now are just equivalent to his entire collection at the time. But uh, <laughs> I had a similar strange Japanese music experience when I first came to right. Japan too. I was working for a place that had an office in Osaka. And right. uh, I was in, there were two guys that worked in the office. I was talking to them and we just started talking about hobbies and we found out we were all into music. So I said, well, what kind of music do you guys like? And the first guy said, bluegrass. And the guy next to him <laughs> said, I like bluegrass the best too. And I thought, yeah, this is really weird because I could travel around, you know, offices in all the cities in the U.S. and it would take a, a long time to find two bluegrass <laughs> well, I guess it bands. depends on what part of the country you're in. But yeah, maybe. <laughs> But, uh, and the way yeah. I said it, and he has more than a thousand bluegrass CDs Good. and I'm yeah, trying to catch they're, up. They're incredible collectors, so, Japanese yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. Which is great and, because now, you know, well, you saw, I hit the uh, used CD shop and I found a whole stack of things, uh, quite a few of which, you know, you can't buy new and aren't on streaming anymore. So right. I'm happy to uh, get the CD cast offs of uh, people who are selling their collections. So. Yeah, this is a big issue with me that there are certain like albums, like rock albums that I liked when I was in college that just aren't available yeah. as CDs, but they're also not available on streaming either. And that right. really bothers me. You know, I kind of want to hear those records again, you know, and I, I don't have mm -hmm. CD copies of them. And now, yeah. you know, they're not even available on streaming. There's a big gap of uh, time periods and different styles that you won't be able to find online. So got to fill in yeah. the gaps. Yeah. Speaking of rock music, I have a little um, editorial to make here. This was in the news this week, too. I just want to mention this. There's a uh, the classical, um, the Italian classical violinist, Uto Ugi, who really needs to record more. He's made a handful of um, albums, but they're, he, he, he's not, he, he's highly touted as one of the great, right. like, you know, contemporary violinists, but you, you just don't hear enough of him on recording. So people like me don't really know because we rely on recordings to hear him. Whereas um, people in Italy could probably hear him live. 
but um, he uh, he was in the news this week because there's a there's a rock band in Italy called uh, Maniskin who won the um, the Eurovision Song Contest that was in okay. in 2020, and they had this song called Zitti e Buoni, which is this really rocking song. It's a, this, oh, you it's sent a, that video link to me once. I, was, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, it was because at the time, especially there was no real guitar music coming out. There were, there was some, but it wasn't really very popular. And then they had this really popular song, and um, they have a new album out that's. Um, being panned by the critics, but I'll give it a listen to see what I think. But anyway, Oogie uh, said that Maniskin was, and this is his quote, Was this is in a translation of his quote, he called them an offense to art and culture. <laughs> right, now, now, they're this like kind of throwback, like glam rock band. And, um, you know, they had this one good song. They had other good songs too, and Italian, young Italian people like him. But I want to say about Uto Oogie, I mean... What year is it? Is it is it like 1962? Are the Beatles like bothering you with their their long hair? What what's going on here? <laughs> you know, is it is it or maybe Elvis? Yeah, I don't know. Elvis 1957. Hips, hips or maybe or uh, something. Yeah. Maybe you're like uh, Thomas Adorno and like Cab Calloway is ruining art for you. You know, in 1930 <laughs> or whatever. I mean, mm. they're not they're an offense to art and culture. They're not adult music this is why we're trying to differentiate on this podcast between right music for adults who are, i feel like the adults among us don't you know people like over 40 or maybe even over 30 really don't know what to listen to anymore so we're trying to kind of like encourage right. them into that but i think this that maniskin is in a different category and to be honest <laughs> uh, looking at the, the atlantic just came out with this you know not that the atlantic is this great like bastion of music criticism right uh, I'm going to listen to anything they say either. But they came out with an article saying that uh, this the, the new Maniskin album is uh, terrible. And, you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, Maniskin's um, 15 minutes of fame might be over. We'll have to right. see. But anyway, I think, um, you know, just, this, just to kind of don't go into that genre. Young people like it. It's kind of, you know, it's for them. I liked it, too, when I was younger. Mm. And I still like those old records that I heard back then. I still like some new things that are coming out now. Including that Maniskin song, Zitia Boni, which which means, um, by the way, Zitia Boni means uh, is what you say to children. You want them to be good. I mean, it really means be good. It just means quiet and good, you know. But it's what you say to them when you you want them to behave. I don't think they're culturally relevant enough, Maniskin, to be an offense. Italians <laughs> love them, but they might. I don't know. They might be done. We'll have to see what happens. Uh. Yeah, anyway, so Uto, just just make a recording, okay, and just. Uh, <laughs> You're making adult music. Just keep doing that. Art is gonna ex is gonna survive despite what rock music does. Okay, it's a, for sure. It's a different thing. There will be artistic rock music, and then there will be just bubble gum, and then it'll just be trash and whatever. But <laughs> it's not affecting art, please. <laughs> anyway, so that's my editorial. All right, that's a long editorial to get things wound up here. We do have one more piece of news: um, a death this week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, since we're on the more popular genres here. Yeah, yeah. let's mention, everybody knows by now, David Crosby died. If you don't right. know, you haven't been looking at Facebook because I'm being bombarded <laughs> with 10 articles a day about him. But he was pretty good. I mean, I liked, um, yeah, well, he was, you know, he was, he was a major figure back in the 60s and 70s. But uh, he's been making uh, an album a year in the last uh, five or six years. And oh, they wow. were good albums. There was a... Uh, yeah. yeah, they're in modern sound. The harmonies, of course, are beautiful. He really has a he has a beautiful voice, and he harmonizes really well. Mm. And I enjoyed a lot of those um, records. He was working with um, Michael League from Snarky Puppy mm. on one of them, and uh, I can't. Oh, here, 
oh, what's it called? Here, if you, I don't remember, but anyway, it was a good record. I liked it a lot. So David Crosby, rest in peace. He was, he's the only member of uh, CSNY to have died, actually. Oh, wow. They're all, it's amazing because they're all yeah. like big drug users and yet yeah, they're all living say. into their 80s. It's amazing. <laughs> he was on his second liver too, wasn't he? I think, I think he was. <laughs> he got good mileage out of it. Yeah. Anyway, rest in peace, David Crosby. Yes. I was a fan. I liked him. And you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And we're up to episode 99 this week, waiting to hit that magic 100 in the next episode. And we've got lots of things uh, planned for that. Also coming up to our two-year anniversary soon. So big things in the mm. next few weeks. Before yeah. we get rolling into this episode's musical content, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings we're going to discuss. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform from France. Now, they also have podcasts there. You can listen to the podcast, get the playlist in the same place if you like. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast, under the search there. And if you can't see the full description or the links are not active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and easy to follow for all the past episodes there as well. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend. If you get any music-loving friends, relatives, uh, let them know about us. And if you give us a ranking or write a short review wherever you listen to us, that helps us get recommended in the music categories and we can get new listeners that way and we would appreciate it. Also, please do come over and follow us on Facebook. Look for our page there. You can get extra info, uh, new releases throughout the week, little other tidbits there. And all of our followers are almost musicians uh, who have followed yeah. us after we you know, shared what we said about their recordings. We have a lot of nice interaction with them. Uh, so if you want to uh, get linked up with some of the musicians we talk about, uh, it's a good way to do it. And uh, we can uh, kind of build a little community. That's what I'd like to do. Yeah. I mean, we're happy to have musicians like listening to the podcast and um, you know, commenting on Facebook, but yeah. we don't want only musicians because we want to match <laughs> listeners yeah. with those exactly. musicians. So yeah. we really want you listeners to be on that Facebook yeah. site too, leaving comments. So please do that. Listeners, please join in there. And you can talk to the musicians too, because they, um, yeah. they, they write to us. It's really fantastic. Speaking of which, we had a lot of really enthusiastic feedback from uh, Adrian Royo and we mm. did his debut recording uh Pangea last week, uh, pianist from Spain, and uh, I thought it was fantastic, very exciting recording. He was really happy uh, to hear what we had to say about it, and he's been following us as a new follower this week. Uh, so yeah, come on over there and uh, check out the Facebook page. Uh, if you want to also, please uh, write to us by email as well. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd really like to hear from you if you have any questions or comments uh, there as well. As uh, been mentioned the past month or two of episodes, we're sharing our audience with some other podcasts, and you'll find the links for them down at the end of the description, as well as the promos for them at the end of the episode. We've got Tom Gauker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz blues and R&B interview podcast. You can check that out. Famous interviews in neon jazz from Joe Domino. He interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And Same Difference 
two jazz fans, one jazz standard that compares different versions of a jazz standard every week and plays little snippets of each one. And then they discuss the history of the original and the different versions. So if any of those sound interesting, you need some more music podcasts to get you through the week, do check those out. All right. Any, anything else in the uh, editorial uh, department there, Russ? Or? I don't think so. I think we're ready to roll into uh, this program that's focused on cello and vibraphone. Yeah, no, it's a nice combination. It's, we're really split. We're all cello in the um, classical end, and we're all vibraphone in the jazz, yeah, the jazz end. end. Now, I'm a big vibes fan, as is Russ. Yeah. And I like the cello enough, but I know Russ is a big cello fan. My favorite so uh, string instrument, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I like, I know you think the violin is too high, but I kind of like, I like, yeah. well, the thing is I like the uh, repertoire for the violins. That's why I like the mm. violins so much. But the cello, yeah, everybody loves the cello. Every time I get, whenever I'm with girlfriends who like classical music, they always like the cello because I think it's that, it's that, that baritone, uh, that human voice, voice range. Know, just, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. They always yeah. like the cello. They always want to play it and things mm. like that. Anyway. So we're all cello this week, and uh, the first album I'm going to be talking about is by uh, the Czech composer, uh, Bohuslav Martinu. And if this is a name you don't know, I would investigate him a lot more. I like him a lot, and I've uh, been listening to his music since um, I was in my 20s when I was first like kind of reading about and learning about classical music. And uh, mm. there were a few recordings of his symphonies. I remember Nema Yervi did a recording of his complete symphonies. I think there were only four of them. And then there were some other... Uh, recordings out too and even to this day it's 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 40 years later and recordings of his music only come out periodically so i'm always kind of grab them when i see them and this one is um of his complete cello sonatas of which there are three the uh musicians on this are johannes moser on the cello andre korobinikov on the piano this is on the pentatone label so I was really interested in this program, and uh, I have to tell you, I'm really glad I uh, chose this because hmm. it was a nice discovery for me. Now, Martineau is kind of an interesting uh, figure. Uh, one of the things that critics make a lot of um, hay about, let's say, is that he was born in this room that was uh, located in the uh, in a bell tower of a church. I don't know he his family lived in a bell tower. Get much sleep <laughs> that way. Jeez. I know. Right? <laughs> And they say it influences music, and you can believe that a little bit from these works. Okay, there are a lot of bell sounds, and they usually have a positive meaning for him. He seems to, they seem to have comforted him. It's actually one of the things I love about being in Europe is just hearing bells all the time, and they're mm. real bells, they're not recorded bells. All right, so I really enjoy that. Anyway, let's take a look at these works. Now he has three um, cello sonatas, and the uh, notes, the booklet notes for the CD go through them in order, but the uh, CD itself programs them as out of order <laughs> it starts with cello sonata number two and then one is in the middle and then uh number three is the last one which is just because the third one is the most florid of the three of them we'll get to that when we talk about it but the uh, first um sonata on this recording is of cello sonata number two h286 i haven't looked into this so um i don't know what the age is for but whoever the scholar is who organized his works Anyway, this was composed in 1941 in New York. Now, and we talk about years a lot in classical music, like the, the year the um, composer was born, the year he died, the year a work was uh, written. And I think that year, though, is going to tell you a lot without you having to read about the work. 1941, World War II was underway. Yeah. It was two years old, and uh, the United States was about to enter the war in 1941. So Martineau had uh, fled the Nazis in 1941 because he was in, well, it would have been 
Czechoslovakia then. It was um, Bohemia, I guess, or the uh, the former Habsburg Empire, which had collapsed, mm. I guess, after World War One. He wound up in the USA. I mean, he kind of traveled through Europe and wound up in the USA, specifically New York. Kind of like Bartok, he found life in New York difficult and was considered an antisocial figure. <laughs> <laughs> By who? I mean, New Yorkers are antisocial yeah, people. Yeah, fit right in, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, he fit right in, as as do I. Um, <laughs> I'm rather antisocial here in Japan, as uh, many people would uh, you know, verify for you. Anyway, this work, um, the uh, second cellist, and I was written for Frank Ribka, who was a Czech-born cellist and former Janacek pupil. Hmm. Um, who lived in Jamaica Estates in Queens. <laughs> it's a so big weird switch to hear for him. Wow. Yeah, right? That's a, that's a big cultural change, let me tell you. Anyway, let's uh, talk about this. It's a three-movement work, as are all three of these works that are on this album. It's, so it's fast, slow, fast in each work for um, Martinu here, following the, the very old Baroque style, and really the, the style of any really concerto, but these are sonatas. Anyway. The first movement is uh, labeled Allegro, pretty standard marking, and it's got this uh, strident piano intro and uh, and a lyrical cello line, so they're kind of mm. like against each other, which is really nice. There's lots of room sound on the piano on this. It's pretty reverberant on the recording and full sounding. Uh, the piano is spiky and disconnected, while the cello is a big contrast, legato and songful. A quieter version of the main material is heard. Uh, after the introduction, after at about uh, two minutes, and then the cello really starts digging in in a satisfying way. Quiet descending lines are heard in the piano at about two minutes and 50 seconds. The cello comes in, remaining lyrical, and the chords in the piano at three minutes and 50 seconds are among my favorite type of chords. They're modal, and they're really wonderful. They really hit me in a good place. This is where I really started enjoying this work. I just love modal harmony. And uh, Martinu uses a lot of it in all of his works. There's a period of a spiritual respite here, but the cello starts bowing furiously. One of the things that modal, when you hear modal harmony, it should put you in mind of church because those old Gregorian chants are all modal harmonies. And um, they have a spiritual quality to them because of that. The cello starts bowing furiously after this, matching the piano staccato scales in the fourth minute. This movement doesn't flow from section to section. It like suddenly changes and surprises you. It really kept my ears on the music, you know, ready for those. Um, yeah. So if, if you're listening to this in bed and trying to fall asleep, that's probably a bad idea because it's going <laughs> to jolt you out of your um, restful state. And not in a bad way, though. It just, it's just the sudden changes that'll do that. But the music itself is really nice. At 5 minutes and 56 seconds, we have what sounds like a recapitulation with the lyrical cello and fragmentary piano lines. Uh, this is a compelling movement. It ends, and I didn't finish that sentence. Oh, man, it ends <laughs> on something. <laughs> it's compelling anyway, it ends. <laughs> it ends on a chord, I guess. I don't know. But the next movement is Largo, and the booklet note calls this, I love this word, hymnic. Oh. I guess that's the adjective for him. Well, you can't say hymnal because that's something else, right? Yeah, so. that's an actual book <laughs> yeah, of so. hymns. Yeah. Hymnic. Hymnic. That doesn't uh, sound right, though. <laughs> I know. It just sounds like they somebody just made that up. Anyway, it's it's like a hymn. This starts with chords on the piano, and they are, of course, modal. How are you not going to have modal harmony in a lot of go slow movement? And in a way... They're modal in the way they progress, so the, you mm -hmm. know, so the, um, the chords themselves are in a modal kind of key. 
There's a gorgeous cello theme, and uh, Moser provides great sound to go with it. There's a heartfelt quality to the cello writing in this movement, and of course the playing, too. Uh, the cello digs into his tone in the second minute for a deeply satisfying sound that goes straight to the heart. Um, so it's second minute, like, listen for that. The line tapers off into gentle piano chords with the piano quietly brooding in its lower register. Uh, the piano gets an extended chord playing solo in the fourth minute with some connecting lines. The cello re-enters at 4 minutes and 30 seconds with descending lines. There are lovely modal chords at the end on the piano. Listen for that at 5 minutes and 30 seconds. And right up to the end of this gorgeous movement. So I highly recommend you keep your ears perked up for that middle Largo movement of the second sonata by Martineau. The third movement is labeled Allegro Comodo. Comodo is comfortable. This features uh, Czech folk dances sounding within a very different cultural context here. Uh, this has an explosive opening on the piano. The piano is busy in its accompaniment, and the cello has a rather virtuosic line at the beginning. The cello becomes more melodic as the movement progresses, carrying themes while the piano keeps busy with rapid figuration as accompaniment. From about 3 minutes and 50 seconds, the cello has a solo, no piano at all there, and the piano re-enters at 4 minutes and 20 seconds with rapid figuration, causing the cello to quickly bow its material to keep up. The final chord is fairly subdued, but is approached virtuosically. Really nice work, and it's not the... Hmm. Of, of three of them, really. All three of these works are really pretty fantastic. Um, tracks four to six are cello sonata number one, and this was written in 1939 in Paris. Now, again, the year tells you a lot. 1939 is the year that World War II started in Europe. Mm. The United States entered two years later in December. Okay, so um, at this point, France was getting involved in the war with Germany and with the Nazis. So uh, I guess news was uh, spreading about um, what the Nazis were up to, and um, Montagnier was going to get out of there. Paris wasn't a good place to be, especially once the 1940s came around. Yeah. Anyway, Cello Sonata Number 1 is a brooding sonata, uh, not surprising given its date. The Poco Allegro first movement sounds like a danse macabre, according to the notes. Uh, the triple time pulse is constantly undermined by two forced beats in the bar. So you'll hear this like kind of dance 3-4 hmm. rhythm, but then there's, there are these kind of like sforzato chords that make it two beats. Okay, the piano starts this off alone with what is a pretty compelling line. The cello comes in with a dotted rhythm. Dotted is dun, da dun, da dun. The piano has a more severe line as the cello rather sighs its way through its more melodic material. The piano, meanwhile, plays disconnected lines. There's a jagged, dancey quality to the rhythm. So that's macabre, I guess. I'm really enjoying the writing for the cello in this particular movement with its constant dancing rhythm, yet with double-stopped melodies. So you're hearing two notes at a time on the cello. At 2 minutes and 58 seconds, we hear the opening cello theme again. But this being the development, we go off in various new harmonic directions. Uh, the entire movement is appealing and holds the ear. I found this compelling. Of course, the material recapitulates at the end of this sonata form. The second movement, lento, so it's a slow movement, uh, begins sparely with the piano alone. The music turns more hymnic. I thought I'd use that word. <laughs> okay. That's it's from the booklet. Um, at the entry of the cello, it plays a chorale. Okay, now a chorale, you hear a lot of these in Bach. They should put you in mind of a church, especially in Protestant churches. Okay, so a spiritual kind of feeling to it. It starts with the piano, a bass note followed by a melodic theme. At one point, the harmony gains some momentum and begins to rise in the piano. 
We finally hear the cello's entry one minute into the movement, so it's all piano for the first minute. There's some gorgeous modal chords in the piano line in the first minute. By the 2 minute and 44 second mark, the modal C's get disturbed by some jagged rhythm and harmony. But by 3 minutes and 10 seconds, this has passed. And by 3 minutes and 27 seconds, we're at a more swaying rhythm and modal harmony. At 4 minutes and 2 seconds, something completely new starts up with chords in the piano and cello playing a rising pizzicato line. And we go to the third movement, Allegro con brio. This is a marking that Beethoven used a lot. The notes describe this as motoric. They like those IC mm, adjectives, like a motor rhythm. So it's going to be sort of perpetual motion. And one of the things they say that I thought was really interesting in the booklet note is joy flares at the edge of sorrow. And I think this is pretty um, typical of Martineau's music. You'll hear a lot of like heaviness in it, but there are just these moments of joy and then they just kind of disappear. You got to really be listening for them. Blink and you'll miss it. You heard this a little bit in the second sonata that we've already heard and you'll hear it again in the third. The movement starts ferociously with an aggressive set of chords in the piano and the cello bowing furiously. There's an energy to the motoric rhythm, a sense that the material is being propelled somewhere. By a minute and 39 seconds, we've calmed down into a swaying rhythm and some very appealing double stopped playing in the cello. The cello line starts bowing furiously again at two minutes and five seconds. At two minutes and 50 seconds, there's an intriguing opening up of the rhythm for a moment. Then it returns to its motor-like propulsion in the third minute. There is then a very satisfying build, complete with busy, aggressive rhythm, to the final grand chord. Okay. The last cello sonata, the third, H349, was written in 1952 in Paris. So at this point, the year is over. Uh, Martineau has returned to Europe. I don't think he was too happy in New York, really. (laughs) Oh, well. I liked it enough. (laughs) I don't know if I'd want to go back now, though. But we live in different times. Anyway. So he's in Paris again. This is a very extrovert work, different than the other two. And it really does sound different. The Poco Andante movement, first movement, a little unusual for a first movement to market mm. Poco Andante. You usually see something like Allegro, which means kind of like joyful or walking speed or something like that. But Andante is slower. Andare means to go. So it's like going speed. So you're sort of traveling. It's not exactly slow, but it's not fast either. The piano takes the lead here with greater bravura than in the other two works. You know, you're going to hear a lot of piano in this movement. The cello's entry only increases the gaiety. Uh, there are bell sounds. So think about um, Martineau in his childhood uh, belfry. <laughs> <laughs> the movement reaches such a fever pitch that it collapses on itself at the end, according to the notes. I didn't really pick up on that, to be honest, but let's see. This um, has a nice bell-like flourish on the piano at the beginning. It sounds really open-hearted. I mean, you'll, you'll like this immediately, I think. The cello comes in with a grateful-sounding melody, and by a minute and 14 seconds, a rhythmic figure starts up, but is interrupted for accented chords. At a minute and 42 seconds, we have a more complex rhythmic figure in the piano as the cello melodizes. They interact in a cheerful way, The piano gets a long solo passage starting towards the end of the second minute, after which the cello comes in with lyrical passages. This is all beautifully played and put across, and it's got some appealing modal harmonies. This is typical of Martineau, really. The structure of the movement seems to pass between the rhythmically active and the lyrical, with the cello taking the lead in the more lyrical sections. The piano line gets emphatic in the fifth minute, 
Then there's some quiet high-speed playing in both the cello and piano that ends in bell-like chords on the piano at around 5 minutes and 50 seconds, and a long melodic section for the cello. Moser makes the most of his warm, inviting tone in these sections. Moser is the cellist. Another rapid section is followed by warm bell-like chords in the piano, ending on a clear tonic. Very satisfying ending of a really sort of cheerful movement. There's really no uh, shadow here. It's, it sounds like it's uh, pretty happy. Maybe our composer is happy to be back in Europe after the war. Second movement is marked Andante. And this has, um, according to the notes, neoclassical accents. Neoclassicism was a movement mm. at the beginning of the 20th century, so this would be late for neoclassicism, in which um, composers um, went back to the 18th century, composers like Haydn and Mozart, and uh, composed music in the uh, forms that they used the very, with very clear lines right. and delineations, except that they used uh, 20th century harmony. So it was actually pretty exciting music. Um, it had these, this modern musical language, but an antiquated formal setup. Anyway, here they're saying neoclassical accents. It's more playful than Andante, really. It's marked Andante, but... Um, I actually um, wrote Mozart-like piano section in this one. Yeah. <laughs> That's what came to my mind, yeah. Well, yeah, as it should, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. An opening piano chord is followed by a pizzicato theme in the cello. And by the one-minute mark, the theme has found a rhythm that propels it into new territory. It takes time for this to build up. It's pretty interesting mm-hmm. the way he just kind of slowly kind of constructs this uh, this rhythm and melody. Uh, there's a rhythm-driven crescendo that ends in emphatic chords at about a minute and 48 seconds. And then the volume pulls back as the cello plays lyrically in the second minute, accompanied by tolling piano chords. So there are those bells again. In the third minute, there's a lovely passage where the piano plays a ticking arpeggio figure as the cello quietly melodizes. Now, I want to just mention this word arpeggio. It's the Italian word for harp, arpa. So anything that's arpeggio means like it's, it's going to be broken up like it is on a harp. This reaches a harmonic crisis by the four-minute mark that sends the cello into a passionate solo passage that results in some gorgeous modal harmony in the piano's chords when it returns. A harmonic way forward is not found, though, and we get wandering arpeggios from the piano in the fifth minute as the cello drones on a single note. They trade, the piano tolling one chord as the cello starts playing a theme in the sixth minute, and at the end, the piano plays a carillon-type figure. So one of those, like, bell kind of tower sort of repeating themes as the cello accompanies and we reach a resolving tonic chord again a satisfying ending to an interesting movement and a rather cheerful one too the third movement allegro ma non presto so he doesn't want this going fast the notes of the booklet say that this has lots of hard on sleeve romanticism combined with neoclassicism oh plump for the neoclassicism actually that's still here the writing of this movement is quasi-orchestral. The piano establishes a happy-go-lucky rhythmic line, accented with crashing chords. The cello joins in at 25 seconds, and the happy-go-lucky nature of the rhythm gets heavy as the music crescendos and the chords are landed on more heavily. I like the way the piano and cello are completing each other's lines in the first minute. The piano changes to a more lyrical theme at around a minute and 45 seconds, then starts up with a rapid repeated note theme, climbing into some odd harmonic areas with virtuosic figuration. This is some of the best playing you're going to hear on this um, album, or the most virtuosic playing in this movement. Uh, the cello comes in with a lyrical theme at around 2 minutes and 30 seconds, 
There's some sudden satisfying key changes after 2 minutes and 30 seconds. At 2 minutes and 12 seconds, the cello and piano are both climbing through harmony via figuration. At 3 minutes and 40 seconds, the piano plays tolling chords. By 4 minutes, we've got a heavy dancing rhythm again. It doesn't sound so positive here to my ear, though there are glimpses of harmonic sunshine as through thick leaves, something that Martineau has done often in these works. Yeah, so joy coming through like sorrow, and it's only fleeting, okay? So we get a little bit of that here, too. The music really begins rippling in the fifth minute as we head to the end. It lightens in its feeling, and we reach an energetic concluding chord, and that's the end of the album. To be honest, I really enjoyed all of this and found myself thinking of what I heard for most of the week. This this really stuck in my mind. I really Hmm. liked it. It's music that's largely unknown, yet it's very appealing and compelling. I love modal harmony, and there's plenty of that in the middle movements and really in all of these works. The rhythm and harmony of the outer movements are always inventive and interesting. Performances are excellent. Moser and Korobinikov well-matched in temperament and approach. And I found both very expressive, particularly Moser, in this case, the cellist, who has more expressive material in the first two sonatas. Korobinikov is also great throughout, but he's heard at his best and most expressive in the third sonata, where he has a big bravura part. This is a composer that really needs to be better known, and this is a good um, way to um, discover his uh, music, and especially his chamber music, if you like the more intimate feel that chamber music brings. I recommend you hear this and get to know this composer. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's my first time to hear these works. How I described it is 20th century music with a romantic heart. Yeah, that's what the booklet said too. Especially the cello parts, they have that great kind of sonorous, melodic quality that, you know, all of my favorite romantic era cello pieces have. Uh, But that's balanced out with kind of more intensely rhythmic sections, both with the cello and the piano. And then you've got the adventurous kind of uh, modal and more modern harmonies, which are largely done in the piano accompaniment. And especially what I focused in on is the kind of block movement of the piano chords in places. They're kind of open intervals, and uh, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of voice leading. You know, they bounce around a lot, and so they catch your attention. But it's all kept in balance. And if you like the cello because of its voice-like quality and you know really warm melodies that can come out of it, there's enough of that here balanced with you know the more rhythmic and modern quality. So I found it an interesting combination. Satisfying in it gave me what I always like from the cello, but kind of um, new and interesting with the different harmonies and combinations of between what the piano and cello were doing. So I'd recommend it, especially if you like uh, cello. Even if you think uh, 20th century music, not really my thing. This is easy to listen to, so yeah. enjoyable. That's important to say. Yeah, it's easy to listen to. And oh, modal harmony. I love it so much. And it's in abundance here. Yeah. All right. So our next album is called Russian Ballads. And it features, uh, th- well, several works by Russian composers. There are three of them. Three Russian composers, that is. Uh, Sergei Prokofiev, uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, and the surprise in the mix, Evgeny Kissin. Now, Kissin is a pianist. He's known as a pianist, but he actually wrote a very brief cello sonata that we hear here. Hmm. And one of the reasons I programmed this is because I really wanted to hear that very brief work, and I figured this is my opportunity. The um, musicians here are Gabriel Schwab on the cello, 
not to be confused with Klaus Schwab, who's the um, the World Economic Forum guy. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> I think Super I'd like him more yeah. if he played the cello. <laughs> so, and Roland Puntinen on the piano, and this is on the Naxos label. Okay, now. I thought that on the Martinu album, the uh, the two musicians were very well matched. But to me, these two have very different temperaments, and I'll have something to say mm. about that as we go on. But um, this is a pretty interesting program. We start off with Prokofiev, a ballad or ballad in C minor, opus 15 from 1912. Uh, this is the first time I've ever heard this work, because I know the, uh, the cello sonata, but um, I didn't even know this existed. Anyway... So we start this album out with big crashing chords at the beginning that quickly decrescendo. The room this is recorded in sounds cavernous even more than on the Martinu, <laughs> though the piano sound is better caught at its quieter level. When it plays loudly, it doesn't distort it all, but the sound just sort of sort of reverberates mm. through the room, and that's kind of caught on the recording. I would prefer a cleaner, closer piano sound, but again, it, the engineer needs to decide, like, how he's going to record the piano given yeah. uh, the uh, room that he's in. Anyway, the cello is well-defined in the large space here. Detail from both instruments comes through, though I would like, yeah, like I said, I'd like to have a little more focus towards the instruments. This is an earnest-sounding piece with the piano very busy and the cello lyrical. Please, Prokofiev was kind of thought of as the, the bad boy of music when he was uh, younger, but here he's um, pretty serious. This is a pretty earnest work at two minutes and eight seconds there's a natural decay of the piano chord and a more aggressive section starts with the piano playing an aggressive rhythm he plays solo for a while the cello is relatively quiet adding a few light plucked notes then at around three minutes and 30 seconds some quick bowing in a crescendo the performance is highly dramatic with both players interlocking well they interpret this powerfully there's a respite at the six minute mark as the music quietens the piano playing soft chords, and the cello a quiet rising figure that vanishes at a certain point. This goes on with some rising intention until the ninth minute when the piano, who introduces all episodes in this piece and does all the heavy harmonic lifting, starts in the high ends as the cello lyrically comes in. By the 11th minute, we're back to the piano's chiming chords. After this, at 11 minutes and 15 seconds, the piano dips deep into the bass and climbs up the keyboard as the cello descends in its range, and they meet on a resolving note. It's got a nice ending, and it's a well-shaped interpretation by the duo. The partnership in this kind of reminded me of a, like a popular dance, a man and a woman. The man leads, the woman basically is made to look beautiful. And so the man is really making all the decisions if you're dancing in a traditional manner. And I feel like the piano is in, the, in that role in this. It seems mm. to be uh, exploring all the new material and just kind of leading the cello into what it's going to do. So pretty interesting that way. Tracks two through five are the cello sonata in D minor, opus 40, by Dmitry Shostakovich. This was written in 1934. This was the first of three string sonatas that Shostakovich wrote. All movements follow classical models. Now, I think at this time... Shostakovich was uh, still kind of in favor with the uh, the Soviet authorities, but he did follow classical models on the in these works, so they were hmm. obviously acceptable to them. Uh, he would eventually get into trouble with Stalin for for his music, <laughs> but certainly not for this. It's a little more um, modest and 
I, I hate to say conservative, you know, conservative compared to what else was going on. Mm. Who who was it that said um, conservatives um, preserve past liberal victories? <laughs> Basically, that's what's <laughs> happening here. Okay, so anyway, Allegro non troppo is the first movement, lyrical skipping beginning to this piece with the piano playing an arpeggiated figure under the cello's theme. Uh, the second lyrical theme in the piano is a minute and 50 seconds is particularly appealing. Not what we expect from Shostakovich, really. It's actually touching. Shostakovich can often be sort of satirical and, mm. uh, you know, things like that. But no, here he's uh, he gets into a bit of a romantic uh, thing here. A minute and 52 seconds. Give that a listen. At two minutes and 20 seconds, the cello takes over and plays the next section of the second theme. At three minutes and five seconds, we reach a new emphatic cello theme. There's a quieter section. Then by the five-minute mark, more of a crisis is heard. It diminishes, and we get an introspective section led by the piano at five minutes and 25 seconds. In the seventh minute, there's a piano-led theme with pizzicato in the accompanying cello. The piano hands this off eventually, and at the seven-minute and 50-second mark, we're hearing repeated staccato chords in the piano as the cello takes over the melody. The piano leads to a quieter section at nine minutes with the cello accompanying. When this section ends, the piano starts a tiptoeing upwards chord progression at about 9 minutes and 45 seconds as the cello plays a winding melody underneath and faintly. This quietens further with the piano playing very quiet staccato chords as though unwilling to disturb. He gets the last chord with a faint cello note to help the resolution. The second movement of this four movement work is marked allegro. And it's a sardonic scherzo, one of Shostakovich's first. Um, but the bitterness of later works isn't at the forefront here. The later works would be more bitter. This one's just a bit um, <laughs> sardonic. It's got kind of a demented dance quality to it. It comes through strongly. And the piano's characterization particularly stands out. I want to say on this album about the artist, Puntinen goes for over-the-top dramatization, while Schwab remains lyrical as often as he can. So I, I was, my ear was always drawn towards the piano on mm -hmm. this album throughout, through all the works. Punton, I feel like, was the more inventive player. Schwab um, has a beautiful sound and phrases beautifully. I think he just wanted to do that, but I was kind of more interested in Puntonen's playing here, the pianists. So that's just my observation. You can decide for yourself. The middle section of this um, movement, the second movement Allegro, has some pretty cool wiry figures from the cello accompaniment as the piano plays the melody. They trade halfway through, then back to the opening material. The third movement, marked Largo, this would be the slow movement, is a romance um, that the notes say drawn a lineage evoking Tchaikovsky and even Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff was really a, in the modernist era, but he, he was effectively a romantic composer. Yeah. Using the occasional using the modern sort of harmony, but he was very much a deeply melodic and following his romantic heroes. The cello starts with a distant, forlorn line, which the piano answers with deep bass harmonies. By a minute and 41 seconds, the piano has started a rhythm, and the cello is in full control of the theme. The cello carries this movement, in fact, and is in full lyrical form. Uh, the piano gets a look in at the melody at 5 minutes and 45 seconds, playing it in a block chord style high up in its range. There's a pause, and at 6 minutes and 48 seconds, the piano gets some solo chords, which the cello answers from the bottom of its range. It's got a lovely, quiet ending. 
The fourth movement is marked Allegro, and it's an unusually clear-cut finale for Shostakovich. It starts in the piano with a simple folk-like theme, which the cello repeats. The theme gets handed off between the two performers as it develops. There's a sudden flourish from the piano at 2 minutes and 20 seconds, with the cello quickly bowing accompaniment. In the third minute, we go back to the opening folk-like melody, and there's a balancing repeat of that material. And we get a rather abrupt, comical ending. Okay, next comes the piece I really wanted to hear, Evgeny Kissin's Cello Sonata in C Major, Opus 2, from 2016. Now, Kissin is well, you know, he was, he composed when he was younger, but his piano career took off, and he became one of the really great pianists of the uh, 1990s when he made a lot of recordings. And then he suddenly stopped recording, but now he's uh, composing a bit. And um, this is his um, Cello Sonata. It's uh, akin to a ballad in its restraint and introspection. Uh, this starts off in a brooding mode with a brief three-note theme of the cello. The cello's line is dramatic and lyrical with the piano filling in harmony as the cello plays. At a minute and 24 seconds, there's a thematic change with the piano playing arpeggiated harmony deep in its bass and as the cello climbs to its high range, always playing lyrically. A crisis point is reached with the cello playing hysterically at the 2 minute and 30 second mark, the piano booming out echoing bass notes. This dissipates, and at 3 minutes the cello starts a familiar theme again, calmly. Cello and piano harmony both start climbing to higher ranges. We start again with the cello's theme in the low register at 4 minutes and 50 seconds, the piano providing harmony and echoing melody. At 6 minutes and 14 seconds, we reach another crisis point with the cello wailing and the piano again booming out bass notes. The cello descends to a lower range, always playing its keening figure. It remembers its opening phrase at 6 minutes and 48 seconds and plays that as the piano plays arpeggiated figures in its upper range. The cello again rises to its upper range, using its thematic material as a ladder to get there as the piano keeps up its high range arpeggiated figures. The cello starts slowly descending along with the piano as we reach the end. We hear the three-note opening theme again at 9 minutes and 13 seconds and end with that. Um, this is a highly melodic and darkly emotional piece. Um, what did I think about it? I can't really say. It, it, feel, it felt <laughs> short, basically. It's a, it's a nine-minute, one-movement um, sonata. Interesting. The harmony is more romantic. I think Kissin is really a romantically-minded player. He's really well known for his Chopin interpretations. And uh, I think we may get that here. Chopin did write a cello sonata as well. Okay, so tracks seven through nine, Sergei Prokofiev, his cello sonata, Opus 119 from 1949. Okay, so Prokofiev wrote this when he was in poor health towards the end of his life, and much of his music was banned under the Zhdanov <laughs> Decree of 1948. Prokofiev made the mistake of going back to the Soviet Union, thinking he'd be this conquering hero. But the Soviets were <laughs> didn't appreciate his modernist approach, let's say. They had their ideas of what music should be like. I want to say something about this. Do you know who the experts are about how art should go? The artist, the person who's <laughs> making the art. Governments don't know anything about art. They should never be making any decisions on what is art and what is not. <laughs> there, I have spoken, okay? So that's my judgment on the Soviet Union. I hope there are Russians listening. Anyway, <laughs> Prokofiev adopted a simpler idiom acceptable to Soviet officialdom as a result. 
It's a good work, though. Right? We shouldn't complain about this. It's direct in manner, but has formal and expressive uh, subtleties that make it among the most often heard cello sonatas in the modern repertoire. So you see, someone of Prokofiev's stature, of his expertise at this time in his life, even though he's writing in a conservative um, sort of style, he's going to put a lot of subtle things in there that show you his brilliance, his expertise, his real genius as a composer. Um, by the way, the premiere of this work was given by, are you sitting down? Mstislav Rostropovich and Sviatoslav Richter, two of the great musicians of the 20th yeah. century. Boy, to just have people like that at your disposal is amazing. Anyway, the first movement is labeled Andante Grave, and it starts with a deep, throaty cello solo um, with the piano echoing the line. The cello theme is attractive, and I like its continuing quality. Schwab puts its lyrical quality across well. The piano plays a repeating chord, and at about the 1 minute and 50 second mark, the second gentler theme is heard. The orchestration of this movement is memorable. Listen to the third minute to the piano line, answered by Pizzicati in the cello. Prokofiev has a lot of very subtle ideas. At around the 3 minute and 40 second mark, a new section starts with repeating piano chords and a melodic idea in the cello. This would be the development section, and it proceeds in contrasting sections, rather than as constantly changing keys with the same material. As it has throughout the album, the piano provides more of the drama and expression. At about 8 minutes and 18 seconds, the lyrical opening cello theme is heard, and we're in the recapitulation. There's a lovely ending in which the cello quietly plays a kind of trill and the resolving chords. The second movement is marked moderato, and the cello starts this off with a rhythmic figure, which the piano picks up. The cello alternates between bowing and pizzicato. The middle section is more lyrical, with the cello taking the lead. The opening repeats in the last minute of this brief ternary form movement. And the third and final movement, Allegro ma non troppo, that's a Beethoven marking. Um, the cello starts off with an appealing melody, with the piano almost immediately taking it out of its harmonic groove. At 2 minutes and 50 seconds, an appealing, gentle section begins, with the piano setting the atmosphere beautifully. The cello plays expressively here. By the 4 minute and 45 second mark, the opening material is back. There's a fairly long coda at the end with the piano playing bell-like chords with scale runs in between as the cello plays double stops and scales. And it ends with solid piano chords. We end our program with one more brief work by Prokofiev, the adagio from his ballet Cinderella, Opus 87 from 1944. The adagio is marked Opus 97 bis. And it portrays the first dance of Cinderella and the prince at the ball. The piano mostly accompanies in this, with the cello playing the thematic material. The middle sections get passionate and dramatic, with tension building in the cello's rising line, and the piece tapers off and ends gently. Okay, so to be honest, um, though this is a duo, my ear, as I mentioned earlier, was continually drawn to pianist Puntinen's playing. This is probably because these works are piano-heavy. Um, with the piano very much leading us through the structure. Um, that's not to slight Schwab is playing. He's lyrical and excellent, but the duo have chosen works with a heavy piano presence. And Putin is a very creative piano player. He has a lot of ideas. He characterizes his parts with a lot of panache, and I think your ear is going to be drawn to him. But find out and let us know. I'll just give you my sort of um, okay. overall impressions ideas for these uh, hmm. I found the Prokofiev ballad, first piece, kind of moody and brooding mm. in nature. Mm -hmm. 
And it was nice programming because the Shostakovich cello sonata I found really fun and spirited with a nice yeah. balance of lightness with some more serious passages mixed in there. But uh, overall, uh, it had kind of a you know positive nature to it. <laughs> then you go to the kissing. I wrote just lots of angst in this I one. I guess, yeah. yeah. Especially an that angsty kind, person. kind of pressing dissonance at two and a half minutes really got You're to right. me. And then switch back to Prokofiev cello sonata. This one, it was very mercurial, like Prokofiev mm. usually is, but I found this one really full of fun and joyful kind of sounds. So it was a lifting kind of mood. And then the final uh, Prokofiev, the Adagio for cello and piano, I was you know, impressed with the really warm and lyrical cello theme here. And it does kind of become more pleading and insistent. Right. And then it kind of soothes down for the ending. Yeah, so overall, it's a naturally very Russian sounding program, but really mm. modern in nature. And still, everything has got that really warm cello sound here. I like Schwab's sound. It's it's very thick and warm. It gets a nice little edge though when he wants it on you know certain kind of passages to emphasize uh, emotions. But as you mentioned, uh, Pontinen is kind of more than an accompanist, <laughs> and sometimes yeah. he's really forceful. And uh, right. yeah, um, so and I think the works have a lot to do with that too. The way they're written, yeah. I think the piano is really front and center in a lot of these uh, sections or movements. But yeah, enjoyable program. I have all these pieces uh, in one disc, and I, I kind of like the programming flow. I thought it balances yeah, out that pretty nicely by the end too. So yeah, I thought the uh, the the uh, last track, the uh, Adagio from Cinderella, really was a bone thrown to the cellist because yeah. he's really <laughs> front and center in that one. Right, right. You know, the uh, the pianist just is just accompanying. Hmm. Right, anyway, so there you go. Our third classical album of the night is a uh, piano trio so involving the cello in there and it's called dance i want to make sure i got that exclamation point in the title in there it's dance with an exclamation point i'll explain that in a minute this is by the minerva piano trio which features annie yim on piano <laughs> oh man michael zvizavitz on violin mm. I, I'm sure I didn't get that right, but I'm, I might be. I'm sure I'm close, though. And Richard Birchall on cello. And this is on the Psalm Recordings label. Now, the name Richard Birchall, for um, long-term avid listeners of our podcast, will ring a bell because we heard his um, concerto for Bassett clarinet hmm. on our July 25th, 2022 episode, number 73, Heavy Hitters. His Bassett Clarinet Concerto was part of a program of Mozart's Clarinet Concerto and Clarinet Quintet played by Michael Collins. Right. So um, that was the one that we that I didn't choose as one of my recordings of the year. <laughs> I wound up going for the uh, the uh, Van Wawa one. But mm. I actually think that the Collins one, when listening, because I listened to it again this week, I was thinking, that, that really is the better recording. But wow. I think I was just charmed by the Von Wauer one so much, so I just wanted mm -hmm. to put that on. Anyway, you know what? Get both. They're both <laughs> good. <laughs> you need more than one recording of the Mozart clarinet concerto, and you want it on Bassett clarinet so you can get those low notes. All the works on this album are motivated by dance, and that's why the it's called Dance! <laughs> <laughs> the Stravinsky and Ravel works that bookend the program began life as ballet music. 
All right, so the first work, tracks one through eight, is by Igor Stravinsky. Um, his Pulcinella Suite, this is arranged by Richard Birchall, the cellist, who's also a composer. All right, now the ballet, Pulcinella, was based on Commedia dell'arte characters. Sergei Diaghilev, people who know Stravinsky's story know that he composed music for the Ballet Russe, who were one of the great um, ballet sensations of the uh, early 20th century. They combined traditional ballet with circus acrobatics and uh, really <laughs> wowed audiences with what they could do. You could sort of think of them as the uh, Cirque du Soleil of their time, except that they were... <laughs> They were more art than circus, let's just say. They were more dance than, you know, circus. English listeners may remember Pulcinella when you hear this word. Now, being uh, someone who's really loves Italy and especially the southern Italy, Italian culture that my ancestors come from, we'll know Pulcinella, you know, is he's a committed to a lot of that character. But um, English listeners will know him as Punch in the Punch and Judy shows. Mm. All of the movements are based on works by 18th century Italian composers. Um, Stravinsky uh, creatively reorchestrated and reharmonized them for his ballet. There were 21 tunes in the original ballet, and eight were recorded in Stravinsky's suite for the ballet, which he called Suite Italienne. And he um, arranged, there were three different uh, versions of it. There's one for violin, one for cello and piano. And uh, Stravinsky toured it with... Um, violinist and cellist that he knew at the time if you want to investigate that mm -hmm. um here richard birchall has combined both violin and cello with the piano into a piano trio and has chosen his own numbers so these aren't the ones that uh, stravinsky set for his suite he created uh, birchall has created a se sequence of contrasting movements within a structure that proceeds logically from overture to finale i'd like to see this ballet actually performed i've never actually seen it i just know the uh mm -hmm. I just know the score, and it's just all these wonderful, like Baroque, neo—it's—it's it's kind of in a neoclassical style, but they're Baroque works with these the modern harmony and rhythm sometimes too. Okay, the first uh, movement of this eight-movement suite is an overture, and this is the way the um, the original ballet starts. The harmony fills out really well in a piano trio. The pacing, though, is more stately, and it's kind of more of a sort of French overture speed. Um, than something Italian, which it really sh should resemble more. The Baroque elements, like the trills before cadences, come through very clearly. I feel like this is missing some of the rhythmic spring it has in the orchestral version. It's a nice arrangement, though, mm. and a good performance. The second movement, Serenata, is, has a Siciliano rhythm, and I like the cello's soft effect with the bow. I'm not sure what he's doing to achieve it, um, perhaps brushing the bow lightly against the muted strings. I'm not really sure but it's a nice sound. This is taken pretty slowly and deliberately, just like the first movement. The cello's throaty tone makes this more appealing when he comes in, just after the one-minute mark. I also like the piano's repeating high note and all the subtle effects in the accompanying string instruments. Very interesting arrangement. The slow tempo does show off all of the subtle effects to great effect. The third movement Allegro Assai, and um, this isn't really played Allegro Assai. This is an ensemble is taking slower <laughs> speeds, I think, than I'm used to in this work, in the original Puccinella anyway. This this really is its own work. I can't really call this, you know, Stravinsky, although it's originally his music. The ensemble is uh, erring on the slower side in this. The intertwining racing lines are clearly heard here, falling into a very marked 6-8 rhythm. I feel like this doesn't have the momentum it could have, though. 
The fourth movement, Andante, has a very atmospheric opening on the strings. The piano plays tremolos while the violin and cello play the theme. At a 1 minute and 15 second mark, the texture lightens to more of a sketch, and the violin plays a melody accompanied by a dancing piano bass. It's a lovely moment in the uh, movement, minute and 15 seconds in. Chords in the strings come in next as the piano accompanies and leads them harmonically on. There's a nice false cadence at about 2 minutes and 53 seconds, and we get a reminiscence of the Siciliano theme just before the end. The fifth movement is marked presto, and this comes across as an aggressive in the full-on attack of the piano especially. I like the skittering sound on the cello's bowing when Birchall plays. It's an interesting arrangement with pizzicati on the violin, as well as occasional bow slashes. Um, the playing, so it, when, I, when I say bow slashes, think about the psycho theme from <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho. Yeah. That's, that's the sound I'm thinking of. The playing suddenly stops about 40 seconds before the end, and we hear another reference to the Siciliano of the second movement. So we got a you know, throwback there. The sixth movement, Fuga, or Fugue, has a heavy bass theme played by the piano, which the cello and the violin pick up. It really isn't a fugue. It's just got like this fugue-like theme that isn't you know, played in all the voices in a fugue style. The seventh uh, movement, Gavotta con due variazioni, or Gavotte, which is a kind of dance with two variations on that same theme, is one of the prettiest moments in the whole ballet and in this suite as well. Here the cello gets the winding theme first, which is then played by the violin as the piano accompanies. There's a pretty coda at a minute and nine seconds. The first variation is in triplets and is heard at about a minute and 20 seconds. It's a lot lighter than the opening version. And the second variation has a cello accompaniment with the piano playing the theme and the violin occasionally answering occasionally providing filigree decoration. The eighth movement is a minuetto e finale. It starts out as a sort of chorale in the piano with a droning bass note on the cello. The violin takes over the melody as the piano continues to provide chords. As with the opening movement, this comes across as rather stately, especially given the carefully marked rhythm in the piano chords. So listen for the first minute for that. The rapid finale begins at about 2 minutes and 20 seconds and doesn't come across as fleet-footed as I'd like. It's got a lot of tricky rhythms in it, all of which are perfectly realized here. Yeah, I think in this work, the ensemble really wants to show off the orchestration, and they kind of play a little bit more slowly than we'd be, um, so that we can kind of really savor those, um, the arrangement, I think. Anyway, tracks 9 through 12 is a composition by Richard Birchall himself, the cellist. This is called Contours, and these four movements are divided into two pairs. The first pair, movement one, moderate. In the opening section, the violin and cello work together. Their chromatic lines are interrupted by ascending piano interjections. About halfway through, these rolls reverse, and the movement fades away in the lowest register. That's the uh, booklet note, not my comment. What I have to say is the violin and cello lines quietly wind around each other, like vines around a gate. A climax is reached at about the minute and 45 second mark as far as the crescendo goes, and it unwinds from there, getting quieter. There's a violin glissando and a knock on the piano's wood at the end. The second movement, or the second half of the first part, is marked fast, and it's scherzo-like. The winding lines of the opening are quicker, quirkier, and more detached. The piano has emphatic, chatty lines in this as the violin and cello take turns, sawing rapidly at quick figures. It ends suddenly on emphatic chords. 
The third movement is a adagio. Uh, it's labeled as a nocturne, and this would count as part two of the work. It's a slow movement. It starts nostalgically, but gets more violent as it goes. Its triple time links it to the finale. There's some fairy dust, like upward arpeggios <laughs> in the piano at the beginning. This continues when the cello comes in for the theme. The cello carries the heaviest part of the movement up to a minute and 27 seconds as the piano continues with pairs of repeating chords. This suddenly transforms into the last movement, a fast waltz. This has unexpected twists and turns where surprising accents and irregular bars keep the imagined dancers on their toes. This has a dance macabre quality to it, like it's being forced on the dancers. At the 42nd mark, there's a pizzicato accompaniment section. Then the strings do a waltz with the piano underlying the rhythm. The waltz just ends without warning at the end, as if a spring has been fully unwound. Track 13, Caroline Shaw, an old uh, friend of the podcast. We just talked about her music, uh, I think, two weeks ago or so. Hmm. This is called uh, Gustave Legray, and this is arranged for the uh, trio by Annie Yim, the pianist. As is often the case with Caroline Shaw's music, this um, the title and takes a bit of a backache so that we understand <laughs> what we're talking about here. Gustave Legray was a 19th century French artist who is best remembered for his innovations in photography. For his seascapes, he developed a technique of combination printing using one negative for the water and another for the sky to create a single layered image. And this um, piece tries to do that with music. It has its origins in a Chopin mazurka. The one in question is the A minor mazurka, opus 17, number four. And it has been choreographed, this, this particular work, and was originally composed for solo piano. So this is an arrangement by Annie M. The pulsating gestures of the opening view Chopin from a distance, but elements of the mazurka slowly begin to emerge three and a half minutes into the piece. Chopin moves into the foreground, so as with Legray's layering technique, Chopin and Shaw elements are at times distinct and sometimes blur into each other. So there you go, that's the title. If you know the mazurka in question, you'll recognize the rhythmic figure at the beginning on the piano, um, but Shaw presents it as a repeating section as the cello and violin add atmospheric pops and bows above. At the 2 minute 30 second mark, there's a section change with the violin line taking the lead. This is very common with uh, Caroline Shaw's music. She really does almost put like a wall between her sections. They don't really melt into each other. She really separates them. Uh, Shaw likes the pizzicato a lot, too. It's an expressive effect that's heard a lot in her music, and this piece is no different. At the 3 minute and 45 second mark, we hear the first unmistakable reference to the Chopin mazurka theme, while pizzicati and the violin continue. The piece proceeds in fragmented sections, meaning each is sectioned off. It'll stop and something new will begin. She rather darkens the harmony in this piece as opposed to the Chopin work she's using as a model. The piece just stops after one of the chord, the chords in the pattern ends. An interesting piece, really. It's minimal and very postmodern, being that it's quoting so much of Chopin. Yet it sounds like Shaw's own creation at the end. Tracks 14 through 16 are by the uh, composer Cheryl Francis Hode. Um, this work is called My Fleeting Angel. This is based on a short story by Sylvia Plath called The Wishing Box about a husband and wife whose completely different dream lives drive a wedge between the couple. Um, when, I said the, when I said the name Sylvia Plath, you knew it wasn't going to be happy. <laughs> happy, yeah. <sure. laughs> anyway, 
The husband, Harold, has vivid and colorful dreams while his wife, Agnes's dreams, are infrequent and always foreboding. <laughs> Agnes's inability to recapture the dreams of her childhood, which she activated by turning the handle of a swishing box or wishing box, sorry, leads her to become depressed and ultimately take a fatal overdose. Oh, man. <laughs> this, I don't know if I want to read this um, <laughs> this, no, this uh, story. Anyway, this piano trio depicts three pivotal moments in the story. Francis Hogue, by the way, like Messiaen, is a sound color synesthete who associates specific colors with sounds. You want to keep that in mind when you listen to this. There's no need to know the story to appreciate the piece since it has a logic and appealing sound world all its own. Okay, the first movement, Larghetto, evokes a dream of Harold's where he envisioned the desert of rubies and sapphires. Now, Obviously, Frances Hoda is going to use her um, sound color synesthesia to really evoke this here. Um, G is red and E flat is deep blue or purple. The movement has a droning, sparking quality to it with its hyper legato violin line. The notes are all connected by glissando. And we finally hear the piano at the 51 second mark. The violin plays its middle register with vibrato now, a more ordinary, romantic sounding melody. The movement ends with a run on the piano that introduces material for the next connected movement, which is Allegro Spiritoso Escherzando. This is uh, track um, 15. Uh, the scurrying movement represents the handle of the wishing box being turned. Uh, the movement is very disjointed, especially in its piano line. At the 36 second mark, we hear the scurrying sound. The music calms a bit, then we get the scurrying sound again. At around the 1 minute and 50 second mark, the violin is often playing melodic material while all of this is going on. If you listen closely at 2 minutes and 36 seconds, you can hear faint violin reminiscences of the glissandoing line in the first movement, which is the husband's dream. By the third minute, all three instruments are heavily involved in the turning of the wishing box, uh, being very active as they are. This ends with pizzicati, which connect us to the last movement, Allegretto Eleganza, which conjures up the dreams of Agnes's childhood when she waltzed with a dark red-caped prince. That's in um, quotation marks. And for Francis Hode, it also represents confusion of emotions. The pizzicati at the beginning outline a waltz rhythm, a rather mechanical one, as does the piano with its continuing line of mechanical triplets with occasional pauses. The waltz gradually slows as the movement goes on, as though running out of energy, and the movement suddenly ends. The last uh, work, tracks 17 through 19, are by one of my favorite composers, Maurice Ravel. Scenes from Daphnis et Chloé, and this is arranged by David Knotts. Daphnis et Chloé is probably my favorite ballet of all time, mostly because I just love the orchestration of the score. I just love all the music in this ballet. Anyway, we take three brief movements of this that usually aren't heard in sweet form. And I really had to kind of search for where they were taken from the score. It's a little odd. The first movement is a nocturne. It's labeled nocturne. And it begins with a shimmer in the strings, a trill, and a chord trill in the piano. Very impressive effect. I didn't recognize this from the ballet, probably due to the timbres. When it crescendos at about a minute and 48 seconds, I realized this is the opening of the ballet with the, the choir, mm -hmm. which the choir sings. We don't hear a choir here, obviously, though. There's a lot more space in this arrangement than there is in the orchestral score. This is gorgeous, but in a different way than the orchestral score. 
I like the string characterizations of the modal melody at 2 minutes and 30 seconds and onwards. It's a very atmospheric part of the ballet um, and doesn't register as thematic in this guise. Nevertheless, the effects achieved by the arranger and the performers are pretty ear-catching, and I was fascinated. A gorgeous rising chord pattern ends the movement. The second movement is a pantomime, and this the gorgeous modal harmony here is Ravel's evocation of the ancient Greece of the story. Uh, this brings us all the way to the end of the ballet, when Daphnis and Chloe mime the story of Pan and Syrinx, in which um, water nymphs transform Syrinx into reeds so that she can escape the god Pan, who is very interested in her and pursuing her. Uh, he then invents the pan pipes from the reeds, and they become the instrument associated with him. Uh, this movement features a lot of quick trilling and some impressive piano runs, delicately played by Annie Yim. Some of the more powerful accents are blunted by the small forces here, but we're here for the thematic material, really, and I especially like the piano sound in the arpeggiated run at the end. For the third movement, Danse Guerriere, or Warrior's Dance, um, we're in the middle of the ballet when Chloe's pirate kidnappers do a warlike dance. It's a pretty wild section of the ballet, but here, as with the Stravinsky, it's a bit measured. Um, there's gorgeous orchestration at a minute and 25 seconds to imitate the luminous orchestral texture. NEM really shines in this piece in general with her light touch on the piano. There's an emphatic final chord to end the piece and the program. So I really enjoyed the program on this album and the excellent arrangements used. Um, on occasion, though, I found the playing a little too careful, especially in the Stravinsky work. I would have liked caution to have been thrown to the wind a bit more, and especially in the Stravinsky. It's really not the most nimble of ensembles, but it's no matter. The ensemble plays with clarity and precision, and the arrangements are really beautiful, and we get to hear all the detail of them. The quality of these works comes across well on this album. Oh, let's see. There's a lot of different <laughs> different things to talk about on this one. Mm. Uh, overall impressions. I really enjoyed the Stravinsky opening. Mm. Pochinella Suite. Lots of different moods, pretty harmonies, and fun motion uh, throughout. So I really liked that a lot. The Virgil is not so pretty in comparison <laughs> going into I, that. You know, mm. But it's enjoyable for the interplay in the different instruments and the rhythmic sections. The Shaw piece, I was kind of amused by it. It has kind of a unique start and stop sense of motion and uh, interesting string harmonies towards the end. So her, I think we said her music is often kind of episodic. Yes, yeah, I even so, said that again yeah, about this work. Yeah. You, um, you know, you get different kind of chunks of ideas and you never know what's coming next. So I'm usually um, entertained and intrigued by uh, what happens in her pieces. Uh, my Fleeting Angel, I didn't care for this one at all. I was <laughs> irritated right from the beginning with the violin sounds and uh, didn't get any better for me there. So Yeah, I think it's that synesthetic quality to it. I mean, it does have yeah. that messian sort of quality. Yeah. But the uh, Nuts Ravel piece, I, I liked that. I thought it captured kind of uh, Ravel's dreaminess mm -hmm. in his music a lot. You know, you feel sort of feverish and... Um, lost someplace but the performance i thought was kind of energetic in that one so uh i enjoyed it yeah so it's a very diverse program uh lots of different moods and uh, combinations of sounds rhythmic feels worth checking out yeah really interesting programming there yeah. i would say it's a pretty yeah it's a pretty interesting uh 
set of works to put together. Yeah. Quite a cello journey uh, and mm. then cello in a bigger context in the last recording there. So interesting. Okay. So we're sort of like uh, doing uh, with a triathlon. So we've gotten off the cello now and we're now we're going on to the, the vibraphone part <laughs> of, the, uh, of the race here. <laughs> yeah. We're going to go on to some uh, vibing out here with three recordings, all vibraphone, but all very, very different in nature. Yeah. And we're going to start out with a Japanese jazz recording. How about that? Here, we yeah. have enough Japanese really musicians on this, considering that we live here. So. Yeah, considering we live in Japan. Yeah. We're going to begin with Mari Yamashita Quartet. And this is on her own label, which, well, it says on the streaming services, it's listed as Mari Yamashita Quartet. But we'll talk more about her label in a moment. It's called A Star of the Ocean Gleaming. And this came out in December 8th. Now, Yamashita was born in Mie, Japan. She started studying classical piano from the age of three and percussion at the age of nine. And she graduated from Senzoku Gakuen College with a classical music degree and receiving the Maida Music Prize and Japan Classical Music Competition Special Prize. In 1999, she enrolled in Berklee College of Music in Boston. She's also studied with, uh, among others, uh, Dave Samuels. You may remember from Spyro Gyra fame, great uh, vibraphonist I've saw a few times in New York. In wow. 2003, she returned to Japan and began her professional career as a musician and composer. And in 2007, she started her own label called Erato Music. Now, not to be confused with Erato Records, the French label, uh, released yeah. her first CD, Erato, as a leader in 2008. 2010, she recorded Sunflower. And there's another one, Efflorescence. That's a two-CD release in 2015 on Erato, but this album is not listed as Erato label, just under the band's name. So yeah, I should I should mention Erato is the um, the muse of erotic poetry. Right. So, <laughs> yes, uh, she's one of, she's one of the nine muses. Anyway, on this recording, she's on vibraphone and also all original compositions here. We've got Hiroshi Fukutomi on electric guitar, Ryoichi Zakota on acoustic bass, Ryo Noritake on drums, and Aya Kurosawa as a vocalist on three tracks. We're going to start with the title track, A Star of the Ocean Gleaming, hmm. which also has a Japanese title, Hoshifuru Umi no Toki. Oh, wow. I didn't see that. So, okay. yeah, this hmm. is a kind of, um, if you translate it literally, it's more like, because, uh, you know, notoki is when. So it's kind of like mm. when the starry sea falls or something. But I'm not really like, sure. I think it's more of like an impressionistic kind of uh, right. title. They went, for, uh, to, they went for the poetic English yeah, title here. Poetic one. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's get into it. A cymbal roll brings it into a rubato eight-bar intro with a really dreamy melody in the vibes and vocalizations on this number from Aya Kurosawa. Fukutomi adds little fills on guitar. After one more bar of 4-4 four, four time, listen to Noritake's drums outline a new fast meter in 7-8. 
No. Uh, there's an eight-bar transition section into more dreamy melody from vibes and vocals for 16 bars. And then Yamashita gets a vibes solo. Uh, she keeps the rhythmic figure snappy to match the tricky meter below. Uh, Zakota and Noritake lock in a nice groove underneath. And Fukutomi gets a guitar solo next, starting out with more lyrical ideas, but he works into more rhythmic licks, fast runs, and tension-building speedy notes. Kurosawa is back with some more vocalizing over vibe improvising from Yamashita, and they join together for another run through the melody. They bring it down and give it a slow 4-4 outro, similar but a little longer than the intro, uh, first on vibes and then adding voice. Track two is Days in the Past. This one's a medium even beat tempo with an eight bar opening, uh, syncopated guitar chords, bass figures, and dancing cymbals. Yamashita plays the minor, kind of modally melody. It's kind of catchy with snappy repeated riffs in an AABA form. The B section uh, builds up with Fukutomi joining in with the vibraphone's lines. And Fukutomi is up first for a guitar solo on this one, and the snappiness of rhythm uh, goes away uh, as he works up from shorter and simpler phrases with nice interplay with Zakota's bass figures. He works into chord ideas and then some runs uh, ending with a trill. Uh, they switch up the form for the solos, doubling up on the A sections before finishing with the B, where Noritake then kicks up the beat more. Uh, Yamashita follows that. Again, nice snappy lines mixed with some cool descending lines that highlight the harmonic tension uh, in the composition. After the vibes solo, they let it chill out with some ringing bass from Zakota and pearly guitar tones uh, for 16 bars before finishing up with a repeat of the A and B sections of the melody and a few final phrase repeats. Track three is called Vanilla Beans. This one's a medium swing tune. Vibes and guitar work the happy 28 measure melody together. The bass has nice switch-ups from walking to snappy figures underneath. And Yamashita goes around the form twice for a solo. Here she swings nicely, comes up with great melody lines that have really nice phrasing. Fukutomi follows her with flowing lines, some cool triplet ideas mixed in, and relaxing or relaxed phrasing, even when he plays speedier ideas. Uh, Yamashita then trades fours and a couple sections of eights with Noritake on drums, who keeps it light with subtle rhythms. They take it around another time in the melody to finish it up. Track four is May, and this one starts with a cool 15-bar intro idea of bass and vibes sharing a melody line over guitar, which joins together on the final phrase into a bossa kind of melody, where Noritake joins in with soft brushwork on the drums. It's a long melody taken by the vibes and guitar, Fukutomi adding chords and fills under his melody lines as he goes along. And he's up for a, a solo first with flowing lines, mixing chords in, and some cool triplet figures in this one as well. And Yamashita follows, and I like how she phrases here, uh, letting some notes ring out longer between her faster figures. Zakota doesn't get a solo on this one, but he's done nice bass work underneath with a good throb and inventive figures. And they close it out with another run through the melody. Noritake giving some more oomph and clicks on the drums uh, this time. Track five is Holiday Season. Uh, bass and guitar locked together on rhythmic figures in an eight-bar intro. Yamashita picks up into a happy melody, 
Uh, Noritake has a doubled up feel on the drums, pushing it ahead. The melody structure is kind of interesting. There's a 16 bar passage, and then we get the intro idea for four bars, uh, seven more bars of melody, and then the intro figure again. It's kind of a fun reset feel. Fukutomi has a guitar solo with a melodic speedy lines and fun repeated note ideas for 32 bars. Then Yamashita has a speedy but melodic solo. Some cool syncopated chord ideas midway through. She ends up on the intro rhythm riff idea and then launches into another run of the first part of the melody into the intro riff again. They vamp out for a while to let Noritake get busy on the drums and they end up with the seven bar melody phrase into the intro idea for eight bars and finally the pickup run from the melody to a final chord. This is a kind of interesting arrangement of the sections. Yeah. Track six is called Duo Song. This one's a slower, waltzing ballad tune. Yamashita plays 12 bars herself, and then the others join in. Fukutomi works nicely in and around the melody as they go. The melody length seems to be 36 bars here. Zakota gets to take over for a bass solo with a gentle loping feel. And Yamashita solos next. Her phrasing's relaxed and flowing with some nice triplet ideas. And Fukutomi follows the flowing solo of his own with interesting interval ideas. They go around the melody uh, once more to a soft ending. Track 7 is called Simply Cucumber. I don't know if you remember this. Um, it's 2007. Yeah. In Japan only, Pepsi came out with green cucumber Pepsi. Oh, I didn't remember, remember this. That? And I was here at the time, yeah. so I don't remember this yeah. stuff. It yeah. was an odd uh, one-off summer version. Yeah, there's something odd about also in Japan. Yeah. They're thinking about food constantly on TV. There are loads mm. of shows about uh, food, and sometimes, like when you see the students, like you know, at uh, school, crowded around like their their smartphones, like the girls. Sometimes they'll be looking at fashion things, but they'll often be looking at food, yeah. <laughs> pictures of food. <laughs> they, they're really obsessed with food here, and yet they're all really slim. I don't understand how this happens. I don't know. It's still a mystery to me. I I live here, and I still can't figure it out. I don't know. Anyway, Simply Cucumber this is, has nothing simple about it at all. Um, yeah. The first section is vibes, guitar, and bass synced together with really syncopated rhythmic lines uh, over Noritake's steady hi-hat rhythm. And I have no idea what the meter is supposed to be here. Mm. Um, the next section has animated vibe lines over guitar chords and bass. It seems to switch between 7-4 and and then like eight, four kind of meters. And then we return to the first section before a new section of five, four with solo exchanges between Yamashita and Fukutomi. It's a lot of fun. And Fukutomi has fun lines underneath the vibe soloing as well. Then we hear the first two sections in reverse order to make kind of a mirror image or sandwich structure, I guess. To finish mm. it up, I, I prefer sandwich anyway. <laughs> but it's uh, a tricky. <laughs> I, I often use that uh, second yeah, slice of bread yeah. image in right. classical music. Yeah. So it's a tricky uh, and playful rhythmic tune. Track eight, TV on fire. This one's a loping bluesy pickup line into an unhurried kind of tune. The melody sort of follows a blues progression with some alter chords for 12 bars. Then there's another eight bar section. Interesting interplay and counter lines between the vibes and guitar. Imashita's up first for a solo. Fukutomi drops out, leaving her just over Zakota's bass, and he has some cool bass lines underneath her. The solo length is different though. It's 12 bars plus four 
and she goes around this pattern two more times and Fukutomi sneaks in with guitar underneath on the way. Uh, vibes drop out for guitar and bass to carry on sparely while Noritake gets to work on some interesting rhythmic drum ideas. He's kind of a cool sparse player. Uh, he times his hits in a tasty way, uh, doesn't overplay. Uh, they close it out with another round of the original 12 bar plus 8 melody. Track 9 is Midnight Walk, and here Fukutomi gives a solo 8-bar guitar intro with single bass notes and gentle moving chords. It's a 6-8 tune, and Kurosawa is back for vocalizations on the melody, working together with the vibes. It's soaring and dreamy for a 26-measure length melody. Yamashita takes a couple rounds for a vibe solo, and Zakota has a real snap in the rhythm underneath, and her lines are more free-flowing here in the solo. Fukutomi gets a couple rounds of guitar soloing next, his lines pushing with forward motion into a high-register finish. And Zakota follows with once a round of a solo of interesting rhythmic ideas. Kurosawa's vocals come back for another round of the melody into a final vamping section for her to do some final vocal improvisations to the end. And track 10, Rarity. That's a slow ballad tune. There's an 8-bar intro with vibes and some guitar arpeggios and chords. Sounds like Fukutomi has some more chorus on the guitar here to get more atmosphere. Kurosawa has lyrics on this tune, uh, but her singing is very breezy and delicate, so I'd have to listen to it a few more times to make out the words. It is English, by the way. Yeah, I it's say. in English. She's singing English. It's uh, pretty, and there's nice uh, spaces between the vocal phrases. Uh, Yamashita has a subtle and pretty vibe solo, and Zakota has a bass solo too, with ringing notes uh, before Kurosawa returns with more lyrics into a final verse and some vocalizations. It picks up a bit of rhythmic push towards the end of the tune. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, overall, I thought it's an enjoyable Vibes Quartet recording. Yamashita's compositions are interesting, uh, with flowing melodies, kind of unique structures and arrangements of sections in the tunes. And there's a few tricky meter things uh, to uh, figure out and <laughs> listen to over again on the way. I like the interaction among the members. Yamashita's solos uh, have a variety of speedy mallet work, but they're also have a lot of smooth phrasing in uh, passages as well. Fukutomi has really great guitar chops and fluid ideas. And I like Zakota's rhythmic variety on bass. It caught my ear a lot underneath everything else. And I enjoyed uh, the tasty drumming and subtle nature of Noritake's playing. Uh, so you add in Kurosawa's dreamy vocals, and you've got a nice little vibes journey to start things out. It's really funny because I more or less said the same thing that you did. <laughs> I used the word enjoyable too. And also fresh. I thought it was kind of hmm. a fresh sounding album. I like the way the vibes, like Yamashita's vibes, saturate the frequency range. Like when she plays, like there's like this cloud of yeah, spreads you know, harmonics out. and stuff. Yeah, it spreads out a lot. Uh, she tends to play with maximum use of harmonics, which are right up front in most solos. And I like hmm. that. This is generally a hard hitting ensemble with the bass thumping heavily and satisfyingly. And the guitar picking gently, providing contrast. All the solos tend to land on the melodic side, which I really liked. And I was especially drawn to the guitar. She has a good sense of melody, I thought, um, as do the vibes. And I think the vibes are really the star of this recording. So mm. there you go. Like, All right. Yeah, I think it's worth a, worth a listen there. And those ringing vibes here are going to be yeah. in big contrast to the last album <laughs> that we'll hear. They, that, yeah, yeah. We'll talk I'm more about that later. looking forward to talking about that when we get yeah. to it, yeah. But anyway, uh, for a second... 
We've got uh, a big name in the vibe world, Jay Hoggart, and his new recording, Raise Your Spirit Consciousness. Yeah, and he wants to do that. Spiritual (laughs) here. This is uh, on his uh, own label, JHVM Recordings. This is his bio info from his website. He's born in Washington, D.C., raised in Mount Vernon, New York, in a religious family. His father was a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion denomination. And he started playing vibraphone at 15. I like this quote. One night I had a dream that I was playing the vibes. I asked my father to rent me a set. And from the first moment, I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. I wish that happened That's to very me. cool. Yeah, we should, I'm still waiting for that to happen. But, <laughs> I'm still waiting. Yeah. <laughs> what we, yeah. Should we be doing this podcast <laughs> yeah, or not? I don't I'm know. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, he majored in the World Music Program at Wesleyan University, toured Europe, played Carnegie Hall during his freshman year. In his junior year, he traveled to Tanzania to study East African marimba music and That's graduated really wow. yeah, from Wesleyan in 1976, returned to New York City in 77. He's recorded uh, 22 CDs as a leader, 50 as a collaborator, and his previous recording, 2016, uh, Harlem Hieroglyphics. It's a two-disc recording that features Gary Bartz on saxophones. Mm. And um, for over 25 years... He's been the uh, director of the Wesleyan Jazz Orchestra. Now, uh, I first came to know him uh, going back, let's see, the year was 1994. I was driving around in a 1978 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Oh, it's a huge boat of a car. <laughs> Those are giant cars. Yeah, seven liter <laughs> engine. And it had this uh, AC Delco stereo system. I used to listen to the jazz system on it. And one... Uh, day I was driving around, and a new recording by the Japanese trumpeter Tero Masahino, a spark came on, and uh, they had Horace Silver's song for my father with this really cool arrangement with a lot of percussion, including Hoggard on uh, Vibes. And I went right out and bought that album uh, after that. I've had it ever since then. Uh, so that's when I started listening to him. And Hoggart says of this recording, quote, the music in this recording is intended to help you raise your spirit consciousness. It's grounded in African-derived global rhythms. The goal is to merge the sacred and the secular in the realm of thanksgiving for our everyday blessings. Let everything that has breath make a joyful noise to praise God. I actually think that's what all music should be about. Should be, yeah. Yeah. Because you know, that's why music exists, really, I feel like, to raise our yeah. spirit consciousness, isn't it? All right, so we've got some unique instrumentation on this uh, recording. Uh, Hoggart on vibraphone, Nat Adderley Jr. on piano, so the great cornetist, Cannonball's mm-hmm. brother, uh, Nat's son, I guess. We've got Firoen Aklaf on drums, Dwight Andrews on soprano sax and bass clarinet, Kenny Davis on bass, and James Weedman on organ and it says also piano so there's no notes for individual tracks i'm going to assume uh that adderley gets all the piano solos okay. since weedman's doing the organ solos i could be wrong on that i guess we'll find out though during yeah. the week we'll let you know if we find out so okay. and there's a lot of tunes here uh <laughs> this is a pretty long <laughs> yeah, album. it's a long album um <laughs> And we've got a mix of Hoggart Originals and some other interesting uh, arrangements of things. So we're going to start with Holy Spirit Consciousness, a Hoggart's original. Uh, this deep, funky electric bass and piano intro that sets the groove. Hoggart and Andrews come up in on the bluesy melody, vibes and soprano sax together. 
The second section has cool repeated note patterns, and they go around the two sections twice. There's an eight-bar bridge that really contrasts lightening the mood with shifting harmonies and rising lines, and an extra measure with some sax and drum fills into a solo from Hoggart. Uh, he starts at bluesy, but soon gets into some cool outside uh, chord licks. It's really speedy, dazzling mallet work. Uh, <laughs> you're going to hear that a lot on this recording. He's and, impressive, yeah. they say. Yeah. Uh, and he ends up going around the bridge section. And then Adderley is up for a shorter piano solo, keeping it rhythmic, bluesy, and funky. After the bridge section, Weedman is on organ for another round, using mostly a clean tone and getting more harmonically adventurous. And then Davis is up for a short bass solo next with some cool licks. And the bass tone is deep and strong uh, all the way through this track. It really yeah. uh, thumps it out. It kind of oozes yeah. sort of its tone, yeah? Uh, they take it through the melody and bridge once more to finish it up and let the organ uh, hang on to a final. Amen, that was it <laughs> from uh, yeah. Hoggart, I assume, shouting that out. Right. Another Hoggart original for track two, Peace to You, My Children. Uh, this one starts out with a busy eight-bar drum intro from Aklop. Uh, the others join in on the last bar to pick up into the melody. Soprano sax and vibes again are working together. It's happy sounding with short rhythmic phrases and has sections with short repeated notes that build anticipation. Uh, they go around the 18-bar melody twice. There's some really tight and busy bass and drum work going on underneath, contrasting with the easy flowing melody lines. Uh, Andrews takes a soprano solo next with happy sounding melodic lines. Hoggart follows with a really speedy solo with some cool interval ideas. Then Weedman is next with a playful organ solo, including choppy chords, and then smoother chords before Adderley uh, takes over on piano, and he keeps up with some of the choppy ideas. So they finish up with another run through the melody. Another Hoggart original for three, I Want Love, I Don't Want Hate. Yeah. Uh, we get a four-bar intro with some drums, organ, and vibes, and then into the melody with a reggae kind of feel to it. Yeah. It's another happy-sounding tune. Hoggart takes the lead with alternating softer piano and organ support below. Adderley has a little rhythmic piano interlude before Hoggart joins his phrase and then spins off on some uplifting improvisations. Gets some blurring waves of sound with really fast mallet work. Uh, works the melody again with exciting fills between phrases. There's a nice little ending section where the rising vibes ring sort of off into eternity. Track four. Now here's an interesting arrangement. Uh, I guess we could call this one hymnic, but <laughs> it actually, <laughs> the, the playing of it is uh, more gospely. Uh, this yeah. is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, a hymn by Robert Robertson. 1758, England. But it's going to get a more modern gospel treatment here, starting with some rubato ringing vibes and kind of bird-like calls on the soprano sax. Hoggart hints at the hymn melody. Uh, after a little pause, soprano and vibes come in on the melody, giving it a gospel feel with Weedman's organ comping underneath. Uh, Hoggart has another dazzling solo, and then Weedman has a rhythmic gospel organ solo, followed by Adderley on piano. It's got some nice rolling figures and bouncy lines. They all trade off some fours with Aklaf's drumming. Uh, once more around the melody, Hoggart adding some improvisations to a final jazzy coda and soft ending. Track five. Bird of Beauty, a Stevie Wonder tune, fulfilling this's first finale. Finale, yeah. yeah. 1974 record. Starts with a subdivided eight-bar drum intro. Vibes and sax join in with repeated syncopated notes, building up the tension for another eight bars with a little break into the melody. It's got a lively samba feel to it with pulsing acoustic bass this time from Davis. 
Saxon vibes share the melody as before. They end the melody with the syncopated note section again, and Adderley is up for a rhythmically engaging piano solo. Weedman's got soft organ underneath that. Andrews gets a short melodic soprano sax solo, and then Hoggart gets a solo too. They take it around the tune again and jam out, repeating the syncopated section to the end. Track six, a Hoggart original toe dance for a baby. This one's a floating 6-8 feeling tune. Uh, There's an eight bar intro, the first half just on vibes until the others join in. No sax here, just vibes working the sunny melody over rhythmic piano chords with bass and drums. Aklav has nice dancing cymbals. After a return to the opening intro riff, Adderley gets a piano solo, then Hoggart. Uh, He plays nice melodic ideas after some real zipping fast figures. Uh, Davis gets a ringing acoustic bass solo on this one as well. After another melody section, they riff out over the intro idea again, and Hoggart lets the mallets dance for some more improvisation. Track 7, Duke Ellington's In the Beginning, Praise God. Bring in the bass clarinet for some ominous low tones over deep bowed bass, mysterious ringing vibes, cymbal splashes, and a few organ note interjections, I think, in there. Uh, Some sparse piano enters the dark mix. There's a big pause and then a slow drum groove. Bass and organ join in. Uh, Andrews handers the simple melody line on the bass clarinet with Hoggard's long sustained vibe notes. There's lots of space around phrases for little piano and organ fills, and they sync up nicely in spots. The minor melody has a few major twists and then a big major turn, brightening the mood for a while before it turns back to minor and Hoggard gets a vibe solo. I like his extended lines of ideas. They take another run through the melody and then chill out for a while with some bass clarinet and and vibe improvisation to the end. Track 8's Hoggard's original Worship God in Spirit, Truth, and Love. A Hoggard creates a big wash of vibe sound with flurries of notes, and the organ swells into the rubato flow, dancing cymbals in there too. The bass starts to add a bit of a pulse, but the drum kicks it into a slow tempo with Hoggard taking the melody, the piano working closely under him, organ under there as well. The chords have a gospel nature with some unexpected turns. There's no sax on this one, but the th- sound is thick with the three instruments sort of in the same kind of register. Hoggard sticks closely to the melody with just restrained fills and some runs as he goes around the melody sections. It's pretty enough as it is and has a big ringing ending. Track nine, we're going to get a Wayne Shorter tune, Deluge. Bass clarinet and vibes work the rubato intro here. It moves into tempo, and Andrews has some angsty squawks before getting into the melody together with Hoggard over the easy, flowing swing tempo. Adderley's up for a solo first with some punctuated chords underneath in his left hand. Then Hoggard has great swinging phrases peppered with more speedy rhythmic figures. Davis gets a bass solo that's got an interesting mix of space, bendy notes, and speedy bass lines. Andrews returns for another run through the melody with Hoggard to finish it off with some doodling lines at the end. Track 10, Both Feet on the Ground, another Hoggard original. A nice acoustic bass run from Davis to get things started into a funky groove with the drums and piano. Uh, Andrews works the bluesy melody with Hoggard on bass clarinet. There's an eight measure melody section eight bars of the groove, and then a contrasting B section with figures of two notes over shifting chords. A Weedman is up for a caffeinated organ solo with a ripping tone here. <laughs> then Andrews has two bass clarinet solos at once. 
uh, going a bit wild on different <laughs> tracks panned left and right. <laughs> this has some fun with that one. Hoggard hmm. has a super speedy solo, continuing on over repeats of the B section into some extended play over a vamp with a wailing bass clarinet. Imagine that. <laughs> All to a final drum figure to end it. Maybe he's like uh, Roland Kirk and he's actually playing them at the same <laughs> time. Now that would be interesting, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trek 11, Thad Jones is a child is born. Uh, a really beautiful tune. Uh, once you hear it, it'll always stick in your head. A pretty rubato solo piano intro. It's a lovely waltz tune. Hogger takes the melody on vibes gently. Davis has a solid bass pulse underneath. And Aklov's cymbals are sparkly here. Now, Hoggart shows a more delicate side on his solo here with just gentle attacks and pretty melodic ideas. A gentle piano solo from Adderley matches the mood as well. And they take it through the melody once more with some extra room for Hoggart to add final busier ideas and some pretty piano runs at the end as well. And we're going to end up with something completely different. Primordial yeah. Aqua Mist. And this is credited <laughs> to all of the members because I think it's a kind of spontaneous free improvisation. You know, just record it and see what happens. Starts with a murky intro of bowed bass, ringing vibes, and bass clarinet. Some sparse piano, drums, and organ that get added in too. After three minutes... Things get more active with bass clarinet lines and then short interjections from all the instruments. After five minutes, the bass clarinet has some honks and things get more rambunctious all around and continues like that to the end uh, <laughs> with some final vibes uh, ringing out. Yeah, I think that title sums this work up yeah. uh, pretty well. <laughs> Primordial, yeah. <laughs> So at an hour and 16 minutes, this is a really long recording. Uh, overall, it's uplifting music of a spiritual nature with positive-sounding originals by Hoggard. Nice covers of that hymn and Thad Jones's great tune, among uh, the other uh, mix of songs. The final free improvisation contrasts with the rest of the material quite a bit. The instrumentation overall is a little unusual, having both piano and organ together, uh, soprano sax and bass clarinet. That's interesting. Uh, it makes it a little quirky, but Hoggart's technique is uh, virtuosic and always exciting. The one thing I don't like sonically about the album is the piano sounds really dead and flat in the mix. There's like I no, mentioned this too. Yeah, yeah. you, you okay. said that there's no reverb on it, and I wish they could have just got that sound a little bit you know, more resonant in the mix. But anyway, overall, I think Hoggard succeeds in his sharing his positive spiritual vibes with the listener, and his enthusiasm comes through the music. Yeah, this this album just uh, shines light everywhere with the music and the titles, too. I want love, I don't want hate. Yeah. Peace to you, my children. You know, these are yeah. really kind of positive thoughts. Um, it's positive, even funky all the way through, and Hoggard has an appealing tone lighthearted melodic ideas and he's just a great like virtuosic player too when yeah. he really gets going he i really, really wanted uh, to i'm yeah. i'm seeing it in my mind i really wanted to you know watch the flying of the sticks to just yeah um, to be there right yeah it's sort of he plays faster than the ear sometimes you know the the yeah. uh, the phrases become sort of this uh, wall of sound and you just wonder what he's actually doing to uh, do some of those things but uh, yeah, so, so i guess we could say oh here's a here's an awful pun there were good vibes all around yeah, yeah oh my good god vibes all around like you mentioned i like the piano and organ playing but i felt they were a bit recessed on the recording mm. and especially the piano it has a very matte sound and i would have liked it to be further forward and a little brighter i guess it depends on the instrument as far as the brightness sounds but 
it, it's a little back. The organ sounds good and came across with a more gospel-y feel than we usually hear. I was kind of, it kind of put me in the mind of, um, if you know, Black Magic Woman by uh, the Santana oh, version. Yeah, yeah. Of Greg song. Raleigh on keyboard. It kind of has that, that sound, you mm. know, from the beginning of that. And I like that sound a lot. You don't hear that enough on jazz recordings. You do, mm. we hear that great Hammond organ sound, but yeah. um, it is a little different. Uh, the tunes are all appealing, unremittingly positive and happy which I, I guess i shouldn't say but might turn off one or two people who just <laughs> yeah. want a little bit of heaviness in there mm. um unremittingly is the key word um but uh i think maybe my soul just needs more cleansing in this album probably provided a bit of that it's yeah. like a big hose for your yeah. soul you know get all that that grime out of there it's a total uplift of a record except for the last track but yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. But yeah like yeah it's it's very positive if you, if you need some sunshine in your day or you know yeah go for this yeah and if you want go back and check out that recording i mentioned teramasa hino's spark mm. 1994 i think it's on blue note records right all right we're gonna end up with something a little bit different here yeah and that's uh Eldad Tarmuz, vibraphonist, with his uh, new recording. This is just out this year, January 6th. Tarmuz Jazz Quartet. It's on Queen of Bohemia Productions. Tarmuz got a very interesting resume. Born in uh, Los Angeles, uh, he started his musical career studying drums and percussion. Learned to play jazz vibraphone, uh, mentored by Dave Pike, who's uh, got some really well-known recordings. Uh, he studied in Israel at Tel Aviv University, and he returned to the U.S. playing in festivals all around the world. In 1997, he released his first record, Aluminum Forest. That's a great name. Isn't it? And, uh, <laughs> I feel like I live in that sometimes. Um, <laughs> that is good. Followed by Get Up Close in 2001. 2005, he got a master's degree in Afro-Latin music from California State University, Los Angeles. In the same year, he was appointed head of the jazz department at the Richard Oshanitsky Jazz School of Tabiscus University in Timisoara, Romania, following a collaboration with Romanian bassist and violinist Johnny Bota. In 2006, he established a partnership with the American Cultural Center in Bucharest, aiming to contribute to the strengthening of cultural ties between Romania and the U.S. by promoting jazz as an American art form. Then in 2008, he returned to the U.S. to continue his education at Stony Brook University, where he got a master's degree in classical composition and a doctor of musical arts degree in jazz performance. And... Now, he's a professor of music studies at Hudson County Community College and Raritan Valley Community College in New Jersey. He's uh, played with a lot of big names in jazz, Billy Higgins, Freddie Hubbard, Taj Mahal, Frank Morgan, Poncho Sanchez, and Ernie Watts. But in recent years, he's been focused on original contemporary classical music for chamber ensembles and vibraphone, uh, composing for string quartets and woodwind quintets, as well as works for piano. And uh, his 2017 record, Stained Glass Stories, was uh, nominated for a Grammy. A pretty big resume all around the yeah. world and different styles of music. Now, you hear that, you wonder, what's this going to be? This is uh, kind of jazz funk style yeah. with vibraphones, which turns out to be really unique and interesting. Uh, so, Tanamu's here on vibraphone and all original compositions. Uh, we've got Adam Hutchison on alto sax, Sam Bevan, Bevan, I don't know how you pronounce it, on bass, and Singiz Basil 
on drums. Basil is also responsible for uh, the recording, mixing and mastering done by uh, Bevan. So uh, I guess they had real control over how the sound turned out here. And it's a pretty and interesting And it turned out sound. really well, I yeah, have to say. Really good. It was good. Yeah. All right. Track one, Cafe Soul. That's S-O-L-E. This tune has an eight-bar intro that gets you introduced to the thick bass sound of Sam Bevan uh, over inventive drumming from Basil. Tarmel adds some varied vibes with shorter muted notes mixed with longer ringing tones, and Hutchison takes the melody on the sax, and from the fifth measure, a strong funk groove takes over in the bass and drums. Hutchison's got a good edgy tone for this funky style of music throughout the album and on this track. The melody has a 16-bar funky section, a contrasting, more syncopated sax line with later drum and bass push for eight bars, and then a repeat of the first section. It goes on into a new section that has drum breaks and transitions into a sax solo from Hutchison. Uh, Tarmo has been mixing things up interestingly under the sax with rhythmic chords and sometimes uh, figures that accent the sax lines. Uh, Hutchison keeps his solo funky and intense, and then Tarmu gets a solo, and you'll get to know right from the first track here that he's got a very interesting style of playing. It's yeah. very percussive and rhythmic, and he favors notes without sustain, uh, matching the funk groove very well. It's very different from what we heard in the previous two uh, Vibes albums right. tonight. Yeah, We should also mention the, uh, the the bass on this album is an electric bass, and that's, yeah. that's got this big, fat yeah. electric bass sound. And yeah. All funky, syncopated grooves, yeah. Hutchison returns with the contrasting syncopated section we heard earlier, and there's a final section that presses to the end with more drum breaks uh, to build up the tension. So we're off to a real funky start. Track two, Self-Inflicted Wounds. Oh, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. This one gets off to an interesting beginning with a long, super syncopated melody line worked together in the sax, bass, and vibes in perfect synchronization over a funky drum groove. Uh, some of the lines hint at interesting kind of modes. That goes on for about 50 seconds until the parts split off into their own uh, different ideas. Tamu emerges from that with a vibe solo. Again, it's super rhythmic and really snaps with the bass figures below. What's really interesting here is the variety of tones that Tamu can get from muting the bars, even with short tones. They seem to change the timbre to match what he's doing. Uh, there's a short synced section that transitions into a solo from Hutchison, where he works into some longer held notes with a searing tone, and it connects to a final section of bass sax and vibes melody line, working to the end with a few repeats of the final phrase. Track three, El Hypnotizador. I'm going to go for Hypnotizador there. Hypnotizador? I think, I think. I don't know. Hypnotizador? Okay. I think it's like a made-up word, but Could I'm going to go for that. Something different for a feel on this one. It's a straight clicking drum beat, and the vibes and bass make an intro with two short notes and a long held note. It seems to be like an alternating three beat and five beat measures that create a very interesting feel. Uh, Hutchison comes on top with a smooth flowing melody line. The bass and vibes have cool moving lines underneath together. Hutchison blows on through the melody into a solo, working into fast phrases, getting some angsty squawks, but always keeping a good snap with the groove. Even when he's blowing some trills, he sort of 
hits the pulse of the groove with his breath, sort of emphasizing things. Uh, without a break, he ties it back into the melody for another run. Tamu gets a solo then, mixing up the rhythmic figures and tones in interesting ways. Well, great bass playing underneath that draws your ear as well. And he finishes up with some variations of the opening groove riff on the vibes. Track four, Beneath the Gloss and Shine. This starts with an eight-measure solo vibes intro of an infectious two-bar repeated rhythmic minor riff. Vivan joins in on bass for another round with a matching bass figure. Uh, Hutchison joins in with a sax melody on top of that, and the harmonies start changing up from the ninth bar on. There's a more cool accented syncopation in the sax lines as he goes on. Uh, all but Tarmu drop out for a return to the opening riff, and this time Bivan joins in with a bass solo counterline over a 16-bar section before Hutchison returns for another run through the remaining melody sections into an intense sax solo over some really popping bass lines and Tarmu's backing. And then Tarmu gets a solo next with the rhythmic intensity and snappy triplet figures. The sax is back with the melody to work to the end. Track five, kinda elegant. Uh, this one's a nice change up feel for the start of the tune. Soft rising sax notes over light pulsing syncopated bass figures make a smooth 16 bar opening. Tarmu has ringing chords synced with the bass underneath. Things get funkier from there with syncopated sax melody lines and funky bass fills. Back to a smoother feel with just vibes, bass, and drums transitioning into a vibe solo. And Tarmu starts from more ringing ideas here into rather rhythmic and speedy figures and then back to some more ringing sustained ideas to end up. Hutchison comes back for a solo building from some rising figures and fast repeated note ideas. The tune has a lot of interesting chord changes uh, for him to fit his ideas over. Uh, he continues on smoothing out his tone for a final melody section but with cute little articulation hiccups added on the last note. I'm not sure quite how he does that but uh, take a listen to that. Track six is called No Makeup. A bass and drum pickup into a thick, funky groove for Hutchison to lay some tart-toned syncopated sax lines over. Uh, there's a lot of twists and turns in the melody lines and fun interaction with Tamu's vibes. Tamu's solos next, starting with all muted tones and percussive rhythmic ideas. And I like how he has ringing runs in between the more percussive sections in his solo. Then Hutchison gets a solo next with strong rhythmic phrasing, locking in his ideas with the groove. And he continues on into a final melody section, again, working tightly with Tarmu's vibes. Track seven, A Tale of Dirt and Flowers. So tune in three, four time with flowing vibe intro of 16 measures. I like how the bass figures double up under the vibes. Uh, Hutchison comes in with a legato melody, breaks for vibes and bass to do some dancing together. And like Tarmu's other original tunes, there are a lot of twists and turns in this one as well. Tarmu's solos first. His soft bubbling figures here sometimes sound more like marimba than vibes to me. And it's interesting how he builds up notes uh, that he lets ring or builds up to them rather. Hutchison gets a sax solo next, building tension from repeated lick ideas and a squawk back into more smooth flowing melody lines with Tarmu. Uh, Basil does some cool mixing up on the drums as they get to the end. Track eight is called Mating Calls. This has got repeated syncopated vibe chords to start and set the feel. And then thick harmonized bass lines slam in over a clicky groove from Basil. 
Uh, Hutchison adds an intense crying sax line. Then we get some really fun and funky bass and vibe interaction for a section before the sax lines come back with some gaps for just the vibes to ring out before Hutchison gets launched on a solo. And he's blowing more freely here. Uh, there's a reset to the intro idea and more melody lines. Basil lays down some heavy drum beats underneath. It continues with sax lines and a heavy syncopated push with a little hold and reset before the final section. Uh, the constant twists and turns make it hard for me to get a sense of the form of the composition <laughs> just from a couple mm -hmm. listens to this tune. And we're going to end up with track nine, Tall Grass Prairie. This one has a gentle rising rhythmic vibe figures and soft bass that make an eight bar intro. Hutchison comes in with a legato melody line that has some gaps for vibes and then he gets more funky. Uh, there's some funky synced interplay between vibe sax and bass. Then Tarmu keeps the vibes softly ringing for a bass solo from Bevon. Uh, he has nice melodic ideas with a soft attack, some cool slides into the upper register, and fun harmonies uh, before ending down low. Tarmu solos next, and then Hutchison with some intense speedy lines and edgy tone into more interplay with vibes and bass trade-offs. Vibes, bass, and drums have a transition into a return of the sax for softer melody lines, returning to the end with some final sax flutters. And that's it. It's a funky and fun recording. It's interesting to hear the vibes in this kind of funk style, which matches, or rather Tarmu is matching to this, his unique muted and rhythmic approach. Hutchison sounds intense throughout his edgy tone, is a nice balance of timbre with the vibes tone. Uh, great funky grooves from Basil and Bevan. Tarmu's compositions are kind of enigmatic though. It's hard to get the shape of the constructions sometimes and they go in many directions and probably take a few more listens to sort of get a map of the tunes in my mind. But uh, something kind of unique uh, to close out the vibes program here. Yeah, those funk, but those funky grooves just kind of keep you mm. going like you're, despite that being able maybe to get the form in mind this was actually my favorite uh, jazz album of the week mm. tarmu's approach i said was interesting as you did too um he kind of mutes the uh bars when he plays yeah. and he goes for these angular lines which kind of reminded me of like old chinese folk music in a way the way they're kind of ang right. those melodies are really angular i liked the muted funky grooves he'll often achieve when accompanying the sax and one of the more magical things that he does is he'll sometimes move from a muted sound to a sustained one. Right. When it's his like turn to solo or something like that. And it's just this moment of magic. You hear this a lot in, say, like Debussy's orchestral music where there'll be this subtle change in the orchestra and it'll just grab your ear. And he does that once or twice on the art record. It just really just yeah. opened my heart up. I just liked it so much. Very, really magical when he does that. So, um, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Actually, I thought it was—it's it, unique as well. The, the sound he gets yeah. and those great funky grooves, and the whole sound of the album is great as well. Yeah, it's got a really unique uh, approach, and um, the kind of figures that he plays. And then, I mean, of course, vibes are always rhythmic, and there's right. a lot of players who play fast, but that's not—it's not that he's playing fast. It's that the kind of rhythmic figures are unique. And they'll uh, often get this bloom to their tone, you know, they'll yeah. like just hit the string gently and you'll get this yeah. glassy sort of like rising sound. He's, he's not after that. It's know. not like he's just muted or ringing. He has right. these variations of tone that he yeah. seems to get in between that almost make them more like of a vocal quality 
that emerges right. from it. So I thought that was a pretty interesting technique of musical expression to use. So, so there you have it. Uh, three vibes recordings, all very different, different styles, different techniques, personalities coming through those magical ringing bars that we love <laughs> at adult music. Yeah. So um, I mentioned the uh, the triathlon. So we have the cello. It's kind of like the swimming part. And then we had the vibraphone, which is the running part. So what's the uh, biking part going to be the longest part of the race? Well, that's next week. Yeah. It's all trumpet, isn't it? All trumpet. How, how do we do this? I got, I've got. i actually got all three. I've got three trumpet recordings next week. And they're all by trumpeters that we've already heard on the podcast as well. Right. We've all got new albums out. I thought we'd do that. They look pretty interesting as well. I've got one, uh, one repeat uh, yeah, performer. Sean Gibbs. I remember him. Yeah, he Sean was Gibbs. good the first time. And uh, well, see, so his album, new album, count in uh, November, and I've been wanting to work it in. And then I've got a long list of uh, trumpet recordings I want to do. And then picking from them, I notice, hey, I've got enough to do trumpet with big band. So not only oh, will wow. we have trumpet, but each album will be led by a trumpeter and backed by a big band. Uh, so wow. that's going to be big. And exciting, yeah. And it may as well be because that's a special episode for yeah. us. We next week we'll be reaching episode one hundred. Right? Can you wow. believe it? We're we're in three <laughs> digits. Yeah, I should probably say this next week. But with um, listening to these podcasts, realizing we've done a hundred episodes talking about music, I, it just occurred to me that you and I are not normal people. <laughs> that's <laughs> for really, sure. Yeah, we really do obsess over music because because we've heard. If once our hundredth, once we do our hundredth episode, we will have heard around six hundred albums in two years. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about that. And who does that? Well, we do. That's who. Yeah. So. <laughs> and you know, it's it's not just yeah. here. Uh, in order to sort of make these notes <laughs> and things to talk about, it's very intensive uh, listening, and it's really quite yeah. tiring at times. And um, I have to balance it out with you know, sort of relaxed, just enjoyable listening. Uh, well, sometimes. that's the thing. We're also yeah. listening to other albums that we just want to relax to as yeah, well. exactly. So, so it just doesn't stop. It's just nonstop music. But, um, yeah, I mean, the ball Not is rolling. Life, so i got to say. Yeah. Uh, hmm. It's always good to fill your head and environment with music. So Yeah, yeah especially we'll in these going. rather troubling times. So just lifting us up like the Jay Hoggard. Uh, yeah album yeah we're doing that too to ourselves i do want to mention uh we said last episode uh after we did the uh, yale vandermeulen recording we had a big spike in uh listeners from the netherlands oh, yeah. and uh then last week we had a big spike in uh, spanish uh, listeners because adrian royos shared the episode all over these different uh facebook pages in spain there's some piano group and this one and that one so thanks for yeah, doing we that. really appreciate that yeah. yeah thank you adrian yeah but we also had a big jump in uk listeners so any uh uk I listeners say, i've been waiting for that too i'm yeah. just saying when, when are they going to start listening to us in the uk i mean i know yeah. they're they're well covered in classical music but i don't know about right. podcasts you know they have them but so know. welcome any new uh uk listeners we appreciate yeah, stay that. with us and uh well before we go out and start uh, preparing for episode 100 all that trumpet music if you want to find out what those uh, recordings are after this episode gets published uh, later in the day i'll put up the playlist uh, for that on deezer there'll also be a link 
to it from our Facebook page. And as I mentioned, we need more regular listeners to come over and check out the Facebook page. So come over and you can see some interaction with the artists and maybe we'll hear from some of the people we talked about in this episode. Uh, we'll let them all know about this so you can check that out. And we want to, uh, as always, give thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing logo there. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, those other music podcasts, the trailers will follow when we sign off on this episode. So stick around, listen to those. And if you're interested, the links are all at the end of the podcast description. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for our 100th episode. 100th episode and two-year anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. We'll do that one live from the mountain lair, I believe, with a little Indeed. festivity. Lots of good music to come in the spring. Have a good week. Keep listening. Check out those trumpet recordings early. And we can't wait to come back and see you next week for episode 100. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show. And it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.